Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name's Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. We have Walt Simonson in the house. Jimmy, a comic book legend. Uh, we could be here all day if you list the complete bibliography, man. Give us some highlights and let's get the show on yes. the road. Yes. Uh, Manhunter, Thor, Fantastic Four, Star Slammers, uh, Alien. I could go on and on. And uh, I could go on and on just with the artist editions of this man's work <laughs> that, that have been made. Uh, but it is a pleasure to uh, to introduce Walter Simonson on Cartoonist Kayfabe. Thank so you. excited. Thank you so much for coming by. Walter. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I got to point out right away, the Triceratops skeleton behind your shoulder, it's so on point. That is awesome to see. It, it and, and a present from John Byrne. <laughs> That's funny. Let me see. Hang on. I don't know if it'll still work. Hang on just a second. <laughs> <laughs> If you guys can hear that or not, but yes, and look at those demonic eyes. Yes, <laughs> yeah, the eyes right up. It'll, the jaw is supposed to open and close, but really, it only opens. The muscles are too weak to get it to shut back again. But it'll be over in a second. <laughs> it, 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 it looked like the the um, camera shifted a little bit from the second that that we first started talking. But I saw the oh, some bookshelves over over to the to our left, and I wonder, like, did I did I see the Fairborn? A photo reference book. I do have. They're not over there on the left. Over there, the stuff you might have seen was the famous artists' school books, which are big loose leaf uh, binders. Uh, I do have the Fairburn system. I've had those pretty much since they came out. I still find them useful. Um, those are actually over here. Well, I don't know which. I don't know if we're doing reverse or. I don't know how these things yeah, work. I'm always okay. amazed. Like my iPhone always takes pictures backwards or something like all that. Whatever. But over here to me anyway. Um, Probably, I don't know if you can see it or not. Let me see what I'm looking at here. Uh, that's my drawing table. I have a, you know, it's here. Oh, one of the paper here is a um, tabaret. I have a bunch of books that I use more often than others. And so the Fairburn system is all down there. So, and I have the, I had, they had three sets. They had a, an adult set, a face set, and a kid set. And I had, I had, I have all three of them. And I, I still find them useful hairstyles are a little bit out of date at this point some of that stuff but this and, and it's too bad because it means all the young people in the book you can't see their ears because their ears are all covered up by their hair so i have to go to old people for hair for uh ears when I, if i need to get a good look at one but um i've always found them useful and i i still have still do find them useful from time to time so so um so they were they were quite a treasure early what are the uh, the reference book that you that you use more often that are underneath that paper then Bridgman? Um, a, I have well, I have. Uh, it's not just reference. I a lot of some of it's inspirational stuff. Um, the airtight garage of Jerry Cornelius by Mobius. Um, the uh, um, I have several Topi books. Uh, Sergio Topi, an Italian artist, died a few years ago. Uh, he did a, a book, one of the early books I found of his in the early seventies. I was at a New York convention, and there were a series of books, The Man of Adventure. They were out of France, I think. Uh, the Man of the Swamps, The Man of Mexico, The Man of This, The Man of That. And they had different artists. They had some really good artists. Um, and there were uh, three that I know of that Topi did that were, I guess, in Italian, that were, I presume they were translated to French, although maybe they were done for the French market, translated back to Italian. I'm not sure. But they had one that was a Man of the Swamps about the Seminole Indians and the troops that were down there. And it's really beautiful. It's really, I mean, it's the first Topia I think I saw. Still some of my favorite. Probably imprinted is what that was. It probably, if I'd seen other stuff first, maybe that would be. And there's one, eh, I'm just rambling. There was one 
bit at the very end. It's essentially about, uh, as far as I can tell, I do not read French, but there's a, uh, one of the troopers, one of the American troopers down there, turns out to be partly black. He was, he's a mixed race individual, which puts him on the outside of the troops in general and puts him, he's, this is, um, so long ago. And he, uh, he's kind of drummed out of the court. He's, I think he's taken out to be executed, I think out in the swamps and he's saved by the Indians. And as a result of the Seminoles, I think, and as a result, he sides with the Seminoles and is able to, I don't know if he secures a victory for them or helps them out in their fight with the American troops and ultimately disappears into the swamp and, and vanishes. And the, the disappearance, one of my favorite bits of graphic storytelling where Topi, I don't know if I can describe this right. Topi has the page. There are three panels, a long one, not quite so long and shorter. And what happens is the short ones first, then the medium, then the long vertical. And the figure of the, of the hero, the protagonist is walking along sideways and the shots are just of the swamp and, you know, beautifully drawn, beautifully textured like Topi does. And in the second panel, he's kind of in a second uh, panel, he's kind of going, the figure's kind of going behind it. And in the third panel, he's gone. So it's like he walks into the swamp sideways through these three panels uh, and disappears. And it's just incredibly effective. It's just, it's so simple in a sense and yet so sophisticated that uh, I was blown away by it at the time. And I mean, Toby has a lot of stuff that's, that's more straightforward storytelling, but that was such a beautiful graphic device that I, uh, I became an instant fan. Would you have discovered that bef- like early on before you were a pro or early in your pro career? And I asked that specifically because we did a video about Manhunter on the channel where we, we broke down uh, those stories that you did. And I hope to get some Archie Goodwin uh, chatter in this interview. Let me make a note of that. But um, the, the, the visual storytelling sensibility of Manhunter uh, from, from, from a young cartoonist shot out of a cannon. Like you are doing some amazing storytelling things. Uh, it looks like there's probably a lot of rough, rough sketching and, and, and uh, behind the scenes work in or, order to create these pages. But um, some of the things you just described with Topi, I feel like there's elements of that in, in, in your work at, at that early of a stage. I wouldn't have seen Topi by the time when I was doing Manhunter. I mean, I, the thing about Manhunter, which I, I look back at now and I'm kind of astounded by, is that I began doing that when I'd been in the business six months. Uh, I came to New York in the beginning of August of uh, 1972. Um, I was able to get work pretty much kind of the day I walked in, actually. I, I had some lucky breaks and uh, ended up getting work. Eh, it's not my best work. Uh, but it is, you know, it was kind of quasi-professional. Um, but I, about six months in, I went to DC originally. I worked for DC to start with. They were doing the comics that I liked. I was I was a Marvel guy, really, in the 60s. I, I mean, I read comics as a kid in the 50s, discovered Marvel in the 60s when I was in college, loved them. Big Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, Don Heck, uh, Bill Everett, all the Gil Kane, all the guys who were doing work for Marvel at the time. And uh, loved the stories. Roy Thomas uh, really enjoyed the stories. And so I, and I was within a few, a month or two of discovering Thor, which was literally the first Marvel comic I bought during the mystery 120. I 
was buying all the Marvel comics. You know, there were like 11 of them back then. It was not like a million comics and it was easy to buy all of them and they were cheaper. So I bought them all, read them all. But by the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s, I was less interested in them. They had begun repeating the stories. So the wizard came back and turned the thing bad for the second time. Galactus came back for the third time, you know, stuff like that. And I found in the repetition, I wasn't as interested. There'd be new characters occasionally, but mostly um, I still looked at them. I think I finally quit buying them as a unit. Mm, 70, well, let's see, was I in New York by then? Maybe not. 71, maybe something like that. So I bought Marvels completely from 65 to 71. And then somewhere they had a, there was a Spider-Man cover with Spidey and a campus protest. And there was a probably anti-war, I suppose. That was when Vietnam was still floating around. And um, there was some, there was some stuff about that. I was in college and mm, it didn't strike me as exactly authentic. I haven't looked at that stuff in a million years. Looking at it now, it might very well be, but it, at the time it seemed, Neh. so I, I kind of let go, you know, Listen, when you're a collector, as I'm sure you know, because I see a million long bucks <laughs> behind you, but when you're a collector, it's hard to stop buying some comic that you've been buying since the dawn of time. You've got that collection. You hate to give it up. You hate to go, okay, with issue 3,221, I'm going to stop buying this, this comic book. It's hard to do, but I did do it. I, at the same time, DC was had by the in the late 60s had begun doing books I thought were really interesting. Unfortunately, none of them lasted all that long, but they were, I mean, Enemy Ace by Joe Kubert leaps to mind is probably my favorite of all that stuff they were putting out back then. But I liked the Creeper, uh the Hawk and the Dove, at least, you know, it was different. I like Angel and the Ape and all this weird stuff that ran like five, six, seven, eight issues, but it was pretty cool. Some of it, uh, like uh, turning the Blackhawks into superheroes in armored suits, eh, maybe not as cool as some of the other stuff that they did. Um, but, uh, and then actually, uh, I think Marv, I believe, uh, Marv, if this wasn't you, I'm sorry, but I think Marv and uh, Pat Boyette, I'm sure of that, uh, did a couple of Blackhawk issues where they threw out all the superhero stuff, they threw out the suits of armor, and they went back to their old blue, black leather suits or whatever they were made out of. And uh, I discovered that. I'd never read the Blackhawks. I hadn't seen any of the earlier stuff, really. I mean, a little of it, maybe, but when they were in the, their regular old Blackhawk suits. But I hadn't followed the comic, hadn't read much. I read these two issues uh, that they did. Went, wow, this is fabulous. And I waited for the third issue, and it never showed up because, of course, there was no third issue. And back then, it was hard to get information about what comics were being published and what comics were not being published or had been canceled. So I waited a long time. And of course, there were no comic shops at that point, at least none that I could get at. So you just had to search the spinner racks week after week, which was not always a great success in finding comics. So uh, anyway, I, uh, but I was reading DC. So I went to New York in 72. I went to DC initially to look for work because they were producing work. I liked they were the, that was the work I was looking at. I mean, I still looked at Marvel's, but the DC work was the stuff I was interested in. And so I went there. I lucked out. Um, I got work really immediately. Uh, little short stories back then, comics. There were House of Mystery, House of Secrets, the war comics, Star Spangled War Stories. And a lot of them had backup stories, which is where young guys like me cut their teeth on doing comic books. You could, you could do pretty mediocre work 
You can get paid for it. You could learn your craft. And that's what I did. And then six months in, I had become friends with Archie Goodwin. Archie, Archie kept me alive, actually, in my early days. Um, <clears throat> initially, when I met him, excuse me, <clears throat> his, uh, his portfolio review of my work was, well, this is nice. What else can you do? And I thought, oh, no, I'm doomed. I'll, <laughs> I'll be working at McDonald's for the rest of my life. And uh, I, uh, but the reason was, and I was too green to know it at the time, I had science fiction samples. My, my comic book was the Star Slammers. It was a strip I did in college. Um, I wrote it. I drew it, uh, penciled and inked it, lettered it. It was just done in black and white. It was my portfolio when I was in art school at RISD, uh, Rhode Island School of Design. And so I, I took that with me. I thought that it showed that I could draw, that I could storytell, uh, I could do sound effects. I, you know, I, I didn't really occur to me, although I certainly should have, that showing science fiction samples is not the best way to get work in a superhero universe. Now, back then, there were still a number of books that were not uh, superheroes, the war books, the mystery books. But science fiction, as I learned really quickly, was a very small ghetto in comics. This is before Star Wars, like several years before Star Wars. So you might get like Space Cabbie or whatever it was, or uh, there were other, you know, Adam Strange, Mystery in Space. But there wasn't a lot of that stuff around. And, um, I, you know, I think I've told all these stories a million times already. I'm sure your audience, if you've seen my interviews, you've all heard this stuff. I... Uh, uh, when I was at RISD in Providence, Rhode Island, it was right next to Brown University. It's on the same hill, College Hill. And one day, Carmen Infantino came to give a lecture at Brown. I found out about it. I went. And it was open to everybody. And I went. And at the end of the lecture, Carmen took some questions. I got a chance to ask a question. One of the books from DC I really liked was El Diablo which was kind of a Southern California, Spanish culture, Zorro sort of thing in a way, but really neat. I mean, really, well, Zorro was neat too, but it was still really, it was different and really cool. And I liked it a lot. Gray Morrow drew two or three of those issues and they were beautiful. It was the kind of romantic stuff that Gray really excelled at. And that, because it, it had a, well, more of a basis in reality in the way that the people were presented than you might get in, say, a superhero comic. And he just excelled at that. It was just great stuff. And then suddenly, Alfredo Alcala was drawing it. And I liked Alfredo's stuff, but I thought, and of course, he came out of a Hispanic culture in, in a lot of ways, but I felt that it didn't have the romance that Gray's stuff had had. And I wondered what, why Gray quit drawing it. So I asked that to Carmine, and he answered me. He gave me an answer. I'm sure he didn't remember it later. I was just one more kid in the group. But the answer was that he, you know, he, at the time, he was like the high muckamuck of DC Comics, editorial director or whatever he was called. And he felt that Gray was better suited to doing science fiction than this kind of Southern California um, swashbuckle type stuff. It was swashbuckling comics. And... I understood that because, I mean, Gray did what? The Perry Rodin book covers for like a million issue uh, paperbacks and a lot of science fiction, a lot of pulp illustration for the pulp magazines and was quite good at it. But I was just stunned because I thought this stuff he was doing was fabulous. And really, I mean, uh, better than a lot of the other stuff that did El Diablo. Again, the book didn't last, character didn't last that long, I don't think. 
But it was so beautiful. I just thought, wow, really? I mean, I didn't say that to Carmine. I didn't go, are you out of your mind? Which is what I felt like saying. But I, at least I had the good sense not to do something like that. Um, but when I got into comics and was doing my first couple of stories, I got offered. Um, well, the second and third stories and several stories after that were science fiction. Archie liked, I did a little thing for Archie, a little short story for Archie, a friend of mine wrote. And he liked it. It was called UFM, the ultimate fighting machine. And he liked it enough. It was a backup story that he gave me, you know, another six page job and another six page job, a couple of pinups and stuff like that. And all really in science fiction. And I could see my, uh, that if, if Gray Morrow could get typed as a science fiction artist and taken off books that I myself thought he was really well suited for, uh, what chance did I have? So I thought it would be best if I could to branch out and try and get some work that was not science fiction. A friend of mine, Don Crar, who was, you know, an actor in waiting, well, probably really, really an actor, had the greatest radio voice you've ever heard. I can't do it. Um, hey, Don. But uh, <clears throat> Don was writing comics, probably the way people are waiters when they're in New York City acting and having a waiting job to, you know, a serving job to tide them over. And uh, that may not be true of Don, I don't know, but he was in comics, did a bunch of writing. We were friends and he had an idea. I, I presume this was Don's idea. I don't remember how this came about exactly, but I'm sure it was Don's idea. I didn't know the story beforehand. There was a, there's a story about the Alamo where there was a, uh, a, a gentleman, who, one of the Texicans named James, James Butler Bonham and have you guys ever seen the uh, Disney version of uh, Davy Crockett? Oh, yeah. Fess Parker? Yep. Uh, you young guys, I'm telling you. <laughs> um, they, they actually did a version of this story in the last, there were three episodes of Davy's biography, the last one being the Alamo. And they did this bit in there, fictionalized it <clears throat> with a character, who, uh, Buddy Ebsen, who accompanied Davy on his adventures, Fess Parker. And the idea was, what the story was, that James Butler Bonham was in the Alamo. The siege lasted, I think, 13 days. And early in the siege, he rode out of the Alamo and broke through the Mexican lines and went looking for help because basically there were 100 and I don't remember, 86, 87 defenders and about 4,000 Mexican troops. At least this is how I remember it. Don't write me any letters if I'm too wrong. <laughs> but uh, uh, he broke through the lines, went looking for reinforcements, found that there were none. He couldn't find anybody who would want to come and, and help break the siege. And so instead of deciding that now would be a great time to go to California, he rode back to the Alamo, broke back through the Mexican lines, re-entered the fortress, the mission, and told them there was no help coming. So they knew what the score was. And then he died on the 13th day with everybody else at the final attack. And so Don... I presume Don knew this. So he'd come across the story somewhere. So he and I did it as a three-page story. Um, I, I looked at a lot of Victor De La Fuente. I had a couple of his books, uh, Western-type stuff at the time. Um, some Mobius, some Blueberry, you know, whatever I could find. I, at least I'm saying this. I'm not so early in my career. I don't know if I... I had something. I did have some little Western reference. My reference back then was probably more comics. Maybe I was looking at Gray's... Uh, you know, Western stuff or, you know, Neil did a couple of uh, uh, Western stories back then. I don't know. Maybe look at that stuff. I don't remember. 
But I drew that and did the story. I read an entire book on the Alamo so I could do these three pages. I don't think I would do that now. Now I'm much lazier. But I, I was insane. I was nuts. So I did the story. And the last panel is this oblique downshot of the entire mission with little dots for people, more or less. And you can see the four columns of Mexicans coming in, at least as the research said at that time. There's been a lot more work on that stuff since. So I don't know how accurate that portrayal was. Forgotten the name of the book or the author. Paperback. And uh, it ended up uh, you know, being a, a map, almost an oblique map of the final attack on the Alamo. Um, and it was for Archie for one of the war books, star spangled maybe. And, uh, um, I only found out many years later, but it was, you know, it was a non-science fiction job. It's not terrible. There's one head in it that just gives me the heebie jeebies <laughs> to look at now. Um, I, uh, it was a, a profile in the drawing, I'm going to say it was a, I don't remember. I'm going to say a right profile, but I could be wrong, of Barrett, Tra Colonel Travis, who was the second in command at the Alamo uh, under Jim Bowie. And it's just a it's just a profile shot of him. I just invented him. And <clears throat> I couldn't get the eye right in the drawing. And so I, I must have redrawn the eye and the head. It was like a large head in the panel, although still only about that big, probably. Um, I must have redrawn it like 12 times. Erase, redraw, erase, redraw, erase. It just wasn't coming out right. And, and finally, I drew the eye in a little separate slip of paper and I moved it around until I went, okay, there. And I glued it in, probably rubber cement. That's what we all used back in those days. Still wasn't right. But on a deadline job, sooner or later, you have to let it go. Um, years later, I was looking at it and I realized that the problem wasn't, yeah, it was really a... a and I caught an inspirational moment for me. I realized that it wasn't that the eye, I couldn't get the eye right. It was that the structure of the entire head sucked. And there was no place to put the eye that was correct because the head wasn't correct. And I would have been so much faster and better off after the second or third try if we just erased the damn head and drew it over again. That's what I do now. I learn, oh yeah, it's gonna be a lot faster. Just to, and sometimes when you redraw it, you know, it, it's almost the same. It's not like it's hugely different. And yet there's something about the internal dynamics of the drawing that suddenly go click and you're there. And I don't know what that is. And I don't know, I don't know how that works. It's really annoying when you get it wrong the first or second or third or fourth time, but you keep going until you can get it squared away. So that was a big lesson for me in that job. And I found out many years later that that was the job that convinced Archie Goodwin to offer me Manhunter. That job was probably three or four months into my career, something like that, maybe five. And uh, six months in or thereabouts, uh, I got there in August. That so would have been what, August, September, October, November, December, February. Yeah, six, seven months in, somewhere early, early uh, 73. Archie got Detective Comics to edit. So he began writing. Well, he wrote some of the lead stories. Some of them he, he freelanced out. Steve Englehart wrote a very nice one, The Night of the Hunter, I think it was called. Sal Amendola drew. If I'm wrong about this stuff, please forgive me. It's like 60 years ago or 50, 50 <laughs> years ago. So I may not have it all right. But um, uh, he wanted to do a backup story in the comic. And he wanted it to be mm, sort of the antithesis of Batman, where Batman is a dark character who's metro uh, metropolitan, an urban 
uh, Avenger. He lives in uh, Gotham City and uh, more or less weaponless, at least as far as guns and stuff. Although I still love in the very first Batman comic, he's flying a biplane and he's got a machine gun. Says, as much as I hate to take human life, sometimes it's necessary. <laughs> Which I just thought, whoa, this is Batman? So I don't know the early, a much later Batman. So uh, I he came up with the idea of Manhunter. Uh, he gave him a healing factor. I actually always liked characters that were not over-the-top superheroes, over-the-top powerful. He likes, he said in one introduction to Manhunter, he liked guys like the Green Llama back from the, the old days. So not so powerful. So Manhunter really, his only superpower per se, really probably was he had a healing factor that made it quicker for him to heal. It could be wounded, but it would make it faster for him to heal. I'm not saying if he got a bullet right through the, the pump, he wouldn't have died. I don't know. But uh, we never did that in the comic. But he did get wounded sometimes. He would recover from it very rapidly. Um, and he was a master of martial arts. This is 73. So I don't think that the, all the Asian martial arts film has begun to appear here. I think uh, Five Fingers of Death was the first one to show up uh, down around Times Square when Times Square was, it was what New York really meant back in those days. It was really seedy. But I went with like, there were 12 or 13 of us. We all went to see it. We were all blown. It's a terrible movie. We were all blown away by it. We'd never seen action like that. We'd never got <clears throat> hand turns red. He's ready. Uh, clocks all these guys. Very kind of standard, I think. I haven't seen it in a million years. But, you know, a couple of schools of martial arts or thereabouts scrapping with each other for supremacy. And uh, But I think Manhunter was before we'd seen that stuff. So, But Archie was into some of it. I don't know what he had seen. I had not. But he had a book called Asian, I think it was called Asian Fighting Arts which had a bunch of stuff in it of different cultures in Asia. It wasn't just China or Japan or Korea. It was a lot, it included India, a lot of stuff. And it talked about the martial arts and the weaponry of some of that stuff. So the Bundai dagger, the Katara that, or Katar, I don't know how to pronounce it, that, that Manhart carried came out of that book. There was a nice line drawing of it. And I was able to use that drawing as a basis for what I gave Manhutter. Um and I gave him a, uh, we gave him a Luger. I think Archie didn't originally, hadn't originally thought of giving him actually a pistol, a firearm. But uh, he wrote somewhere that I drew the Luger so beautifully. Or the, not Luger, I'm sorry. It's a, uh, I said Luger. It's a, um, oh no, everybody's out there going, of course it's this. And suddenly I'm blanking out. Um, you know, it's a German, I think it was a German pistol. Like it's a got Mauser a handle, or something. A Mauser. It's a Mauser. Thank you very much. It's a Mauser. And, uh, it looked great, and Gray Morrow lived at that time. I was in Brooklyn at Flatbush. Gray was not too far away, and I got in the no Gray up at Continuity, which was the Neil Adams and Dick Giotto studio at the time, which was really a clubhouse for all of us young guys in the, in comics. It was between DC and Marvel. You could go there, you could hang out, you met people. You you know, I got I met Russ Heath and Neil and all these older guys. Mike Hinge, who was an artist, uh, illustrator, um, a lot of younger guys like Alex J who eventually designed the Thor logo for me when I did Thor many years later. Um, Bob Wyacek, Terry Austin, Larry Hama, Ralph Reese. There were a ton of guys. And uh, Jim Starlin. Uh, I, met, I don't know if I met Milgram somewhere. We've been really good friends. I met Milgram in there somewhere. I don't know if it was at Continuity. But Gray was there. Got to meet Gray. And it turned out we were talking about stuff once. And, and Gray had a full-size replica Mauser. Now, it was replica in the sense it looked, it was a Mauser, but it was solid cast iron. So it wasn't, didn't have any action on it. In fact, somewhere in Manhunter, I think 
there is a drawing of the Mauser <coughs> maybe firing, and it's incorrect because I didn't know what the, how the action actually worked, and I couldn't tell from the from the uh, cast iron model. But on the other hand, as far as drawing it was concerned, it was just fabulous. So I I still wish I had it. I did give it back to Gray. It was hard to do when I was done. I just oh, I love this. This is great. But uh, but there was stuff like that. Archie wrote somewhere that. I drew the Mauser so beautifully that he felt he had to include it in the story. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what he, that was what he said. So, um, and where Batman was dark and, you know, dark blue and black, Manhunter was bright red and white and had, you know, was and, and a little blue. Um, so, and he would have the world as his stage instead of being stuck in one city, he would be really at cities and the countryside all over the world. Um, some of the stuff I, there was one, and then the second issue, there was a, that's kind of a geographical potpourri where he bounces around various places. And one of the places, I'm thinking it was the Himalayas or close to it. And I totally swiped Jim Holdaway from Modesty Blaze in that one. There was a Modesty, I was a big Holdaway fan, Modesty Blaze, a newspaper strip, for those of you who don't know, written by Peter O'Donnell. And uh, there's one story called The Black Pearl, which is, takes place in the Himalayas in Tibet. And I totally swiped some of the structures and the, the look, you know, to try to get the mountains. I had not yet accumulated a million National Geographic, so you were still looking for the stuff you could find. But um, it was great. It was really, uh, you know, and, and that Manhunter is what made my reputation. Uh, when I started that book, I was six months into my career, uh, or that strip. Um, you know, I was known among the young guys I hung out with, Bernie and Michael Kaluta, guys like that. I mean, not bad to be known by those as Howard Shaken became a really close friend instantly the minute I arrived in New York. And uh, they knew who I was. And by the time the strip was over, which was about a year later, it was, ran just over seven issues, seven episodes that were bi-monthly, so just over a year. Um, it won several awards and editors knew who I was at the time. I never had to really go look for work again. Um, it made my career. So Archie, in offering my, that, that, me that strip, really made my professional career. Um, also, he and his wife, Anne, uh, introduced me to a Wheezy, Louise Jones at the time, um, in a social setting at their house, at their apartment. And uh, Archie, they also kept me alive because about at least once a week, Archie would invite me over to their place and Anne would fix a little extra food and I would, I would get an actual meal instead of whatever in God's name I was eating in my apartment in Brooklyn. Hamburger helper for one thing, but beyond that, I don't remember. I just, I'm not sure how I stayed alive. Um, although I did have, uh, what did I have? I had mono that first year when I was in New York. So, or no, I'm sorry, it was pneumonia. I had walking pneumonia the first year I was in New York and I had mono about a year later. And then after that, my diet got better. I got a girlfriend and she began to make sure I ate properly. And uh, it made a big difference in my health. <laughs> it's, it's so funny the way that stuff happens. I gave myself food poisoning the first time I was on my own inside of five months, man. I got, I got myself sick because I didn't wash my dishes good enough or some shit. Oh, uh, you know, got to figure that stuff out. Well, uh, the the story. That was the longest answer in the world. The one question. So give me one more question. We'll probably be done. <laughs> the, the the storytelling of of Manhunter though it really looked like. Uh, the requirement was to like condense oh, that's a, right. a, a that's lot of story started, into a very few um, uh, amount of pages. And I wonder, did Archie give you full script? Like sometimes there's 11, 12 panels per page and, and the flow, the storytelling is not storytelling that I've, that I saw in other comics 
uh, in that context from that time period. Like there's there's some real imagination at play there. If you love comics, you love Cartoonist Kayfabe. And the best way to support Cartoonist Kayfabe is to buy our books and to join our Patreons. So my next book, Hulk Grand Design, Monster Madness, starting in March. Marvel commissioned me to celebrate the Hulk's 60th birthday. That happens in March, available wherever comics are sold. And it's a retelling of the Hulk's history in two oversized, bursting at the seam issues, 10,000 pages distilled down into 80 super dense, hopefully super fun, good looking comic book pages. So ask your local comic shop to reserve your Hulk Grand Design the next time you're in there. We've got some really cool, awesome extras like Ed Piscor's Hulk Grand Design cover variant, Peach Momoko did a variant, Marcos Martin, and Hulk Grand Design Madness with the Jeff Darrow cover. So ask your local comic shop to save these comics for you now so you will not be left in the dark. Other books that are available now wherever books are sold, The Plain Janes, my 500-page young adult graphic novel with Cecil Castellucci about a bunch of high school artists who start doing public art around their town, Alabanksy, and get in all sorts of trouble with their uh, authorities, teachers, parents, and fellow students. Perfect for the young adult reader in your life. And Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive, available from Image Comics. This collects the entire Image Comics run of Street Angel in glorious full color. Eight complete stories, including a couple of stories that were not uh, published by Image Comics or anywhere except mini comics. Uh, one, a Christmas story that I actually sent to my family. So you get all of that in this Street Angel, Deadly Squirrel Live trade paperback available wherever books are sold. From Ed, we have his current magnum opus, the Outlaw Comic Red Room, the Antisocial Network, again available wherever books are sold, collecting the first four issues of Red Room. Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit collects the first four issues, along with a bunch of great back matter, including the first written draft of Red Room, which is really cool to see. This is the kind of stuff where I would double dip when I was buying comics, and I would buy the comics and then the collections to get that back matter. The next series of Red Room, Trigger Warnings, is coming also in March, Cartoonist Kayfabe Month. Ask your local comic shop to reserve this because of a ransomware attack. These could be a little bit rare, this first issue. So this is the cover to buy as soon as you see it. There are also some variant covers. This is my variant cover, an homage to Robert Crumb's Zap Comics, Peach Momoko coming in, and Ed Piscor's variant. Also available from Ed is the Hip Hop Family Tree, available as single volumes or as these deluxe boxed sets absolutely uh beautiful man even that they even feel good ed but uh four complete volumes these are covering the history of hip-hop comics from the 1970s up until 1985 um, non-fiction comics perfect for the music lover in your life or the comics fan WYSIWYG, a story about a computer hacker throughout the history of high technology you can see a beautiful black and white comic here and of course x-men grand design the whole start of Hulk Grand Design actually begins here. A retelling of the 30 year, the first 30 years of X-Men, 300 issues distilled into three beautiful volumes of X-Men Grand Design, telling one coherent story about Marvel's most popular characters and their history. And again, available wherever books are sold. You can join our Patreons at the links below this video. Now that we're done paying the bills, back to the video. In the sixth chapter, Manhunter fights Asan on Toby, his uh, his old tutor, and it's a lot of panels on the two or three pages, and and Gil Kane critiqued it for having too many panels on the on the fight sequence, and uh, that was okay. I I haven't lost any sleep over that. 
Um, as far as the way we worked, I could not tell you when the transition occurred. The first story for sure was a full script. And Archie used to um, do little thumbnails. He would actually make a little book. He would take, I'm guessing, copier paper, well, typewriter paper back then, fold it over and draw it very loose. Archie was quite a good cartoonist. He was a really good cartoonist. Um, and But he would do little, you know, drawings. I mean, they were very loose and, and cartoony. Um, and break down the pages. And as far as I know, the breakdown of the first chapter of Manhunter was maybe all Archie. Um, essentially, I learned, well, I learned the feet of a master on how to do comics with that stuff. And we were doing roughly 20-page stories in, a, in an eight-page format. So we really had to do a lot of panels. There were there were a couple of interior splash pages, but not maybe one I can think of when Manhunter first meets the council and you see all these cold sleep coffins with the guys in them and the, and uh, the main guy in the middle with his little crown. Um, but uh, I think probably for a few of those, uh, Archie did layouts like that. Uh, I would use them or alter them some, depending on what was going on. Um, and then by the end of the run, by the seventh chapter, I was doing the layouts and we were, I would not say co-plotting, but we were discussing the plots uh, and doing it Marvel style, which is to say, Archie would type off the finished plot, hand it to me, and then I would draw the issue. Uh, I'd do it, I'd do the pencils, give it back to Archie. He would um, script it from the pencils. We'd get it lettered, and then it would come back to me, and and uh, I would finish the inks and complete the job. Um, back then, I was doing eight pages a month. I could barely do eight pages a month. Again, I'm not sure how I stayed alive um, on the kind of money. You know, at that time, I was making maybe 40, 45 bucks a page uh, for pencils and inks. Now, life was a lot cheaper in 1972, 73 than it is now, but it's still, and I did a few other jobs I, I, I snuck in. I did a sort of, couple of sort of sorceries with Howard Chaikin. I did one of my own um, and maybe a couple of jobs for Gold Key. So I probably had just enough work to pay my rent, which at the time was, around 120 bucks a month, 140 bucks a month in Flatbush in New York City. I can't imagine any rent anywhere in New York City being 120 bucks right now. But um, uh, I was able to make a living at it. I put a lot of time into the pages. Uh, you know, I'd be doing, I mean, on average, two pages a week, uh, which I, I'm not sure I could take to uh, uh, do two pages. I mean, take that long on a page now, although not unless I were playing a lot of video games or doing other stuff or somehow not doing comics. But um, somewhere in the middle of that of that run, we shifted from DC style, full script, to Marvel style, plot, and then art. Uh, and I don't know where that was exactly. But uh, but the early, early two or three, I'm sure, uh, Archie must have done layouts for. I don't remember now. I just, I have the layouts, or I did have the layouts for the very first one. So I knew what it looked like. And... Um, uh, I learned an enormous amount. And, and a lot of it was, I mean, coming out of art school, I came out of RISD when I came to New York and I had done my, when I did the start, sorry, when I did the star slammers, um, for at RISD, I did a lot of experimenting with stuff. I mean, that was like the late sixties, very well, early seventies. And you go back and look at a lot of the comics back in those days. It's like Jim Steranko and his shield. He only did about 40 or 50 comics. 
but the shields, especially as you went along and got sort of wilder and more op arty, uh, are wild. They're, the storytelling is really nice, and it's very unusual for that time and place. Um, he experimented a lot, a lot of stuff. Uh, even Gene Colon was doing these kind of jagged panels that were just like broken glass on the page. I know Archie used to grouse about having to spot balloons on Gene's pages because it was very difficult because Gene, he wasn't designing a page for ease of reading exactly. Um, but a lot of guys, you know, Neil had those two famous panels in Dead Man where he's got one where it says, hey, a Jim Steranko effect. You guys know this? Sure, you must know that yes. one, right? There's just this long, these long tendrils of, I don't know, vapor or something, and they look a little weird. And if you hold the comic, it's one of those old kid things. Hold the comic on edge, you can read it. Hey, a Jim Stranko effect. And he had one page. That's the one I saw. But I said, he said a lot of people would see one or the other, but not both. I did miss one of them until later, which is there's a whole page with about, I'm guessing, six panels thereabouts. And stuff happens. It's just a regular page where things are going on. But if you pull back from it and look, it's dead man's head. The whole thing is dead man's head built out of all these elements in those panels. So there was a lot of stuff like that going on. Um, which was really encouraging for graphic experimentation. And I really like it. Uh, if I do anything well, it's I have a pretty decent sense of design um, and I like storytelling. Uh, I'm better at that than I am at drawing. Uh, but the Star, the Star Slammers had some experimental stuff and it, not, it wasn't terribly wild, but, but it also had a bunch of topography, topographical sound effects. I did. I, I discovered lettering when I was at RISD and typeface the fonts, and uh, boy, they were fantastic. I loved them. I loved the the rigorous nature of lettering and fonts, which could also be designed beautifully, but within this really tight kind of series of parameters. So I get into that stuff. Uh, all my early work up until I want to say the maybe the late seventies. If I inked it, I probably drew all the sound effects. Uh, I'm sure letterers loved me because when I get them to letter my work, I said, don't letter the panel board, don't ink the panel borders, don't ink the word balloon borders, and don't do any of the display lettering, titles, sound effects, any of that stuff. I'll do all that stuff. Now, they still got paid their full amount, and I didn't get any money for doing the lettering. I was young. I was an idiot. But I, I really wanted something I got out of RISD was every visual element in a panel, sound effect, word balloon, drawing, it's all part of the drawing, the both the panel and the page itself. And it was very important to me to have all that stuff working together in a way that I felt or I hoped would enhance the reading experience. So I did all that stuff myself matters. Those are all my sound effects and titles. Um, one thing that was nice I, I lettered the original Manhunter logo and have a thick, thin, a fairly thin vertical lettering. And about, about halfway through the run, I think, and I, I lettered the, he hunts the world's most dangerous game. And that was a little crappy. That was just, it was okay, but it was small lettering. And um, somewhere along the way, if you look, somebody, Barbie Archie or somebody went back, and I think they typeset, he hunts the world's most dangerous game, but in the same kind of lettering I had used. And I know when they did one of the reprints, Oh, I've forgotten his name now, I'm afraid. It was a designer for DC. It was quite good. Um, and they did a, when they did Manhunter, by the time computers were being used, they, he went back and he took my original logo and straightened it all out. 
exactly like it's just a computer and really lined it up so you know worked beautifully and it was really completely based on what i had it just looked like i'd gotten better but it was really his work to make that the logo work uh the way i had intended so i got to do all the sound effects um i enjoyed it some of the sound effects i i some stuff i really wanted really comic book stuff there's an artist named jerry talaic whose name i'm probably mangling i'm sorry jerry filipino i think and um I loved his drawing. He had the Unknown Soldier for a while uh, at DC, a bunch of other stuff like that. Not so much superheroes, but it was just this loose, flowing drawing and inking and really nice looking stuff. And I kind of, the lettering, the sound effects were the same through his work. And so I always assumed, don't know if it's true or not, that he lettered it himself. But there was a great look to that lettering. And there were times I would go back, I would just cold swipe his sound effects, or at least I would cold swipe his approach to lettering to try and get that sound effect to look like that because it had such a free and easy look to it. And then the other stuff I did typographically or or calligraphically in some cases. Uh, is it Arthur Baker? Mm, oh, Todd. Todd's going to kill me for this. I don't, just, I don't remember the, uh, the the name. I think it's Arthur Baker. It was a letter. There were a couple of Dover books of lettering that he did, brush lettering, and really beautiful. He was a calligrapher. And I've swiped a little of that some, from time to time. On the uh, X-Men Teen Titans, Apocalypse Now, I think I totally swiped his lettering to get that. I, although that's lettered by, by Tom Orzakowski, but I, there was an ad for that book, and I used that kind of lettering for the, uh, for the ad. So I just tried to pull stuff in from everywhere. I think when I was doing Manhunter, a lot of it was learning from Archie. A lot of it was just trying to cram 20 pages of stuff with eight pages of story. And uh, in that case, you just had to... Um, figure it out you had to figure out solutions that would make that work and i think most of the time they did i'm not sure i could cram that much information onto a page at this point in my career uh, walter uh, you, you mentioned RISD a couple of times and uh i'm curious about comics education and i mean in the early 70s what was that like how did they view comics were there comics classes there what, what was that like no there were there were no comic classes i don't think anybody had comic classes i was at RISD from 69 to 72 and there were no comic book classes. Um, you know, uh, I was certainly serious about doing comics. I mean, I, when I went to RISD, I did not go there with the idea that, hey, I'm going to get into comics. I went there because I didn't know what else to do. I went to college originally uh, to Amherst College in Massachusetts. I was a geology major. I went there because they had paleontology as an undergraduate study, and I wanted to be a paleontologist. I wanted to study dinosaurs. It turned out Amherst had not, not much of the way of dinosaur fossils, had a lot of mammal, uh, mammalian, a mammalian collection, and a professor, uh, Dr. Wood, professor Wood, who was a paleontologist on staff, mostly paleo as a graduate level study. So when I went, I went to Amherst, uh, I'm still not quite sure how I got in, to tell you the truth, but I got in. Uh, and I went, I did a, a paleo thesis for Dr. Wood, but it was mostly looking at rabbit and rodent teeth under a microscope. Uh, mammalian teeth evolve very quickly, the whorls and the twists and the enamel. And so you, and they also teeth survive in the fossil record at a time when sometimes bones don't. So you can get a really good sense of the progression of evolution and other things by looking at the teeth. 
which was interesting. And it's more interesting to me to tell him about it now than it was to look through a microscope when I was 20 years old or 21 years old. So by the time I finished at Amherst, I had decided that paleo was not where I wanted to go. Now, if we had a reptile, reptile collection, I worked on a reptile collection, this may be a different story. I wouldn't be talking to you guys, or maybe I would. But I, I also discovered I'm not a giant outdoors guy. My younger brother was a geologist and a professor at Oberlin College for his working career. He traveled all over the world, a lot of Australia, uh, a lot of uh, uh, some South Africa, South, uh, and, and he loved it. And I'm out there, I can't even imagine being out in the boiling sun with a dental picks and a whisk broom working on the fossils and fighting off the black flies. I just think, man, maybe not. So, uh, but by the time I finished at Amherst, I had learned that paleo is not, and you go to college to learn stuff, that's what I learned. Well, I learned a lot of other stuff as well, but that was one of the things I really found out. And I didn't know what else to do. Um, I had always drawn pictures. I've drawn since before I can remember. Uh, when I was four years old, uh, I had drawn before that, which I did not remember at all. And when, this, is, this is the story my mom tells me. When I was four years old, I had mono. So I had it twice in my career, which is annoying. But I had mono when I was four. And, you know, with, you're mostly exhausted. You lie in bed a lot. And back then, we didn't have a TV, no video games, obviously. A lot of that stuff didn't exist. The media didn't exist in the modern sense. So I had drawn a bunch of pictures when I was much younger, somewhat younger, and quit doing it. And, you know, your mom, oh, my talented boy is drawing pictures at the age of two or whatever I was doing. And now I kind of quit doing it. Mom was disappointed. So I'm sorry he's not drawing anymore. But she didn't try to force me. She just said, oh, that's too bad. And, uh, but when I was four and had mono, uh, I was in bed a lot. And so we had like a little table that, that had legs that popped open, sat across your lap and had a table and you could flip the table up on an angle. So you could actually, you could put a book on there and read, you could draw. So she got me some paper. Uh, dad would bring home used paper from the office. Uh, they had, we, he would bring home, we had uh, eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. They'd been printed on one side. I'm not sure how, ditto maybe, but maybe something else, charts. He was a soil scientist, so charts of stuff. But then it was being thrown out. And so dad would just get reams of this stuff and bring it home. He put it in his desk, in a, in a slot in his desk with all of his other stuff, like caraceable bond. You guys won't know what that is, but any old person out there will know what I'm talking about. Caraceable bond was the kind of paper you put, you typed letters on, and it kept the ink of the typewriter just wet enough or whatever it was. You could erase, you made a mistake, you could erase it pretty cleanly unlike regular paper where you typed it, you'd have to white it out. This is before whiteout. So he had carbon paper. You might know what that is. You might not. Yes. He had other stuff like that in there. But that front slot was my, my, me and my brother. It was this paper flipped over on its back. So it was clean on one side. And we could do, that was ours to use as we wished. We made water bombs. We made battleships. We made, we drew pictures on it. We did everything we'd think of, you know, hats, um, and uh, so when I was sick, that may be when dad began doing this. Um, I had paper to draw and I began drawing when I was sick. I never quit after that. So, but I never thought of drawing as a way of making a living. My dad was a scientist. My brother who's younger anyway, but he became a scientist. And so the idea of drawing for a living or freelancing, uh, pretty alien and really unknown. It wasn't even alien, it was just unknown. I had no idea that people made a living like that. So. At some point after I got out of Amherst, after I graduated, um, I took a year off. I was a graduate in 68. 
I was I was very fortunate from my point of view in that uh, Vietnam was raging at the time. The Vietnam War was raging. I think 67 or thereabouts was the maximum year call up for young men for the draft. So I was drafted uh, and when I graduated and then I, I failed my physical. Uh, I have really, really bad eyesight. I'm very nearsighted and I'm nearsighted enough that I'm well beyond the definition of legally blind. Now I can see with glasses, but probably I'm not the guy you want to give a loaded gun to and drop into the jungle and have me lose my glasses because really I would just be helpless. So for whatever reason, well, it was the eyes, the eyes for sure, but however that worked out for the army, um, the doctor told me he was going to have to uh, fail me. I got to tell you, it was not the worst day of my life. Um, that was a tough time to be 21. And I had friends who did everything, who went to Vietnam, friends who went to Canada, friends who went to med school and got deferments for some years before they went into the army, hoping, or the military, hoping that, you know, the war would be kind of over by that time. And I don't really care what you did. It was tough to be 21. So, but I, but I hadn't made any plans out of college because I figured I'll be drafted. My plans are made. And I didn't really plan to go to Canada or anything else. I just thought, oh, I don't look forward to this. But failed my physical and suddenly my future is open in front of me again. And I hadn't really planned it out. So I moved back home. As I've said elsewhere, I'm sure my parents were thrilled. But I moved back home. I worked in a bookstore uh, and I thought about stuff. And I finally decided to apply to art school. I'd taken a couple of art courses. Hadn't really enjoyed them. But because I just wanted to draw. I did not want to make paper mache sculptures. I didn't want to do toothpick constructions. I didn't. I just wanted to take a pencil, draw pictures. And uh, I ended up um, deciding I applied to RISD. The Ryan School of Design. I applied to Pratt in New York, and uh, I get into RISD. Uh, the way they treated that, they treated me as a transfer student. So they took all my liberal arts credits that I filled up my liberal arts uh, requirements at RISD, and uh, you essentially you go in, you matriculate as a in the summer as a summer session student. You did six weeks, essentially freshman year in six weeks, two D design, three D design, lettering, which is where that began to develop. Um, nature drawing, uh, I've forgotten the other two or three, two classes, I think there were six classes, figure drawing, life drawing was one of them. And um, uh, if you passed the six week course, you got into the fall as a sophomore. So I went back to college again as an undergraduate, graduated a second time. And it was while I was at RISD, when I was at Amherst, I had, I began reading Marvel comics. That's why I decided to read Marvel and read comics um, and love them. By the time I was at RISD, I wasn't reading Marvel so much, but I was still reading comics. I had a good friend, Scott Miller. Hey, Scott. And uh, he had a VW. I did not have a car. And we got together every Tuesday, I think, back in those days, new comics would come in. And no store had all the comics. No comic shop. So we'd hop in his VW, and we had about five spots that we would hit around Providence to cover all the comics. And hopefully they all had, they they all had you know two copies of whatever we were looking for, so I couldn't I couldn't retrace that route now. I remember one of them was off one direction, well, the other I could get approximate directions from them. It's so funny, but to think uh, about, we like, drove all over. Like what's which, that? It's fun to think about, like like which store has the unknown soldiers and stuff like <laughs> that. Yep, <laughs> that's exactly right. So we ended up uh, I ended up reading comics, collecting a bunch of them, 
uh, reading a lot more outside the Marvel bubble at that point. Uh, and I got interested in um, storytelling and, and doing comics. So I eventually did the Star Slammers as a senior thesis, my senior project, and um, took that to New York as my portfolio. And I've already explained how that all worked out. So uh, I'll tell you, I will tell you one more story. I hope it's okay. Um, I don't, I have told this one a couple times, but not a lot. This is how I got into comics. I came to New York. Back then, you could come into the office. I, I think I had, I probably had an appointment that time. Once I went in just to see what comics were like, and I got taken to the office in 1970, and Sal Amendola showed me around. I met Len, Len Wein, Marv Wolfman, Neil Adams, Murphy Anderson, a bunch of guys. I just got brought into the office. That would never happen now. But then it did which lucky for me. So I, uh, I went to New York. This would have been uh, August of 72. Um, I had a house sitting gig in the city. So at least for a few weeks, I didn't have to go search out an apartment while I was trying to get work and seeing if I could actually get into the business. And I went into, I think Archie's office. That's when I saw Archie and he said, yes, it's nice. What else can you do? I went, oh no, I'm doomed. And then I went, I saw maybe somebody else. I don't know who I would have seen. I saw a couple editors, I think. I've forgotten the other one. And then had the same response. I learned later the two editors could not have been more different. And they were antithetical in their tastes. But I get the same response. I'm like, oh, no, it's like a company thing. I'm doomed. It's like the same thing everywhere. And I, they had a coffee room back then. They were at 909, I'm going to say Lexington Avenue rather than 3rd. It was above a post office. Big tall building, around the 20th floor, 19th, 20th floor. And they had a coffee room. And in it, they had two or three vending machines, well, three or four vending machines. They had coffee and crappy other stuff. And uh, I went in there. I'm not quite sure why, but I walked in there maybe for a break to think about what I, my future. And it turned out that uh, Bernie Wrightson, Michael Kaluta, Howard Shaken, and a fourth guy were all sitting in the room shooting the breeze at a table. The fourth guy was either Alan Weiss or Dan Green, but I don't remember for certain at this point. And uh, I haven't had a chance to ask Alan if it was him, but whoever it was, and I knew Howard very, very slightly from a convention in Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago. That's where I'd met him. So introduced myself, sat down. We shot the breeze. I knew Michael's work. I knew <clears throat> Bernie's work at that time. And this is probably about the beginning of Swamp Thing, I suppose. But I'd seen his Nightmaster stories from Showcase a couple of years earlier, which I'd really liked. And um, so we, I showed him my portfolio. Because they asked what I was doing there. I said, well, I'm trying to get work. Mm -hmm. Showed him my portfolio. And they liked it. And Michael said, let me show this to the guy behind you. Well, the guy behind me was an old guy, meaning old 40 years younger than I am now. Well, maybe 30 years younger. I would, he might have been in his 40s. He might have been in his 50s, but it was Jack Adler. And Jack Adler was the second in command at DC Comics in production under Saul Harrison. And so he showed, Michael showed Jack my book. I had everything bound up in kind of a large uh, book I'd made. And Jack liked it. And he asked if he could go show it to Carmine. And Carmine was the editorial director, publisher, whatever he was then. And I said, sure. So he disappeared. And I'm sitting there talking with the other guys and a little nervously, not knowing what to expect. <clears throat> and suddenly Jack comes 
running back into the room and says, Carmen wants to see a let's go. Like it was one word. So I'm in Carmine's office. I do not remember the conversation. I'm there for five or 10 minutes. We talk about comics. The one thing I do remember is he asked me if I, oops, he asked me if I liked or was influenced by the work of Bernie Krigstein. Um, I was not at the time. I think I had probably seen Master Race in a big hardcover EC collection, um, but I did not I did not know Bernie's work at all. I say Bernie, I knew him. I never knew him. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, but looking at it later, I can see why Carmine wondered, because my work at the time was very linear, not a lot of black, very designy. I could see why he would have wondered. But the upshot of it all was that Carmine liked my portfolio. Remember, he was a guy who had done science fiction because he had done Mystery in Space with uh, Adam Strange. So he uh, called in three of his editors, Archie, Joe Orlando, Julie Schwartz, and made them all give me a job. Now, they were all short stories. They were all like, four or six page stories. So I walked out of his office with three jobs. I, uh, I, the first one I did was for Orlando. Um, it was a, a weird, a weird war story. I call it Cyrano's army that Len Wein wrote. Um, Len remembers having written it for me. Uh, I love Len. He's no longer here. I can tell the truth. Len can't deny it. And the answer, I remember Joe pulling the script out of his drawer. It was like an inventory script. Um, I still think that's probably true because I walked out of the office with three scripts. So, uh, but Len remembered writing it for me. I think not, but it's okay. Whatever. Um, that's the story he's telling up in heaven right now to all the artists who are listening. <laughs> and uh, that's the first one I drew. It was tough because I really had no war reference. You know, I got a couple of war comics and used that stuff. I was in this house, I was house sitting. So I drew the drawing, I drew the artwork on a ping pong table. I didn't have any art, I didn't have any drawing tables anywhere. So that was the best I could do. I lettered it as well as uh, wrote, as well as drew it, penciled and inked it. Um, I don't think I, no, I did not color. I colored a few of my early jobs. I did not color that one. Um, anyhow, I, uh, and then I had a sure this UFM job, ultimate fighting machine job for Archie. And then the story for Julie, I like Julie, but we, we were kind of antithetical in our approach to comics and the kind of drawing I was doing. I knew it wasn't anything Julie liked. He gave me a story that was, it was a typical DC story of the time, typical Julie story, and really the kind of story that had gotten me interested in Marvel comics. And the story was, how do Krypton, why do Kryptonians have headbands? And, <laughs> and, you know, one day Kryptonian bumped himself in the noggin and he, put on a headband, a band, and they said, wow, that looks great. Let's all wear those or something like that. It wasn't that story, <laughs> but it was just, it was that kind of stuff. I just went, oh man, really? I have to draw this. But after I drew the story for Archie, he gave me another science fiction job. And then the Alamo story, maybe something else, a couple of pinups that were war pinups. I got to draw the German battleship Tirpitz on a double page spread and a Phantom uh, F4 fighter from uh, the Vietnam era and uh, wrote the caption. That was my first actual writing in comics were those captions. And, uh, and then someone there offered me Manhunter. And I think by common consent, Julie and I never spoke about that job again. <laughs> he never brought it up. I never brought it up. Eventually, Dave Cockrum drew it. Dave was probably the right guy to draw that story. So 
Um, so that's literally how I got into comics. I, I, you know, once Archie offered me Manhunter, I had regular work. I did do, I went over and did a couple, three jobs for Gold Key. They were across the street and down the, down about three blocks uh, on Lex at Western Publishing. And I went there with my portfolio. They had a young editor named Frank Tedeschi. No idea what this has become of him. But Frank uh, gave me uh, a little short four-page Twilight Zone jobs. I did, I did two four-pagers and then one six-pager. And the six-pager, about a year into my career, a little more, um, one of the best jobs of my career at that time. Didn't get fabulous coloring, but it's, uh, it was the best I could do. I was looking at a lot of Howard Pyle's uh, King Arthur stories. He did a lot of line illustrations for the King Arthur stuff that he wrote. And I look at that stuff intently when I was inking it. And I inked that entire job with rapidograph, with technical pens, uh, in order to get kind of a flat line, but thicken it up in some places or have a thicker outlines, and thinner inlines. So um, that, were, and that one worked out really well. And as far as I know, because it was a fairy tale, it was a John Warner, I think, wrote it. It was a fairy tale. And Rod introduced, I, because of six pages, <coughs> excuse me, I got to draw Rod. On a four-page story, you didn't get to draw Rod. But on the six-page, they gave you the same two stock photos everybody had, which is why <laughs> Rod always looked exactly the same on all those drawings by different artists. But, uh, but I got to draw him. And, I, and, I, and I, I don't know what possessed me. Oh, I just, it seemed appropriate for the story. And I, Frank didn't stop me. And so I drew Rod in a kind of a medieval costume with a cod piece. The cod piece is highly, it's highly rendered. So you can't really see it very well. I didn't want anybody to stop me. So it's just really shadowy. It's not really, but I gave him a long, like a long clay, long stemmed clay pipe and uh, a little you know, leather jerkin or whatever he had. It was a medieval outfit. And then the last, uh, that was, he was sitting on a toadstool in the, uh, a big toadstool as this horse and cart and little dwarf driving it went by in the splash page and then on the splash panel. And then in the final page, it's a close up of Robert. He still has his collar, I mean, it's the, the costume collar on. And I don't know if this is true. Somebody out there may know the answer. As far as I know, it's the only time Rod Sewing didn't wear a suit in his presentation of a Twilight Zone story. <laughs> I never thought about that at the time. I just thought it'd be appropriate for the story and he might enjoy it. So that was how that worked out. But I did get the the early work. That was how I got into comics and the early work that I did. Walt, uh, you mentioned uh, Continuity Studios. You mentioned meeting Larry Hama, Ralph Reese. These guys are known assistants to uh, Wally Wood. And I believe there's a piece or two of your artwork in Wit's End. Uh, do you have any Wally Wood stories? How did that happen? I, I don't have a lot. Um, I met Walt, I met Woody up at Continuity as well. Um, he wasn't, you know, this is like the mid, well, early 70s. Uh, I did one drawing for Wit Sam, but it was, I think, really after Woody had let, was not doing the book anymore, the magazine anymore, somebody else. Bob Layton maybe was doing it. I don't remember who did that book afterwards. I did do a drawing of a dwarf, uh, a dwarf warrior sort of on craft hit paper, duo to do a shade paper for wits. I think it was the one drawing I did for them. But um, uh, I knew Woody up at, at continuity. The really sad thing was that uh, when you saw Woody, he was pretty burnt out even by 73, 74. And each time you saw him, you thought, wow, he can't look any worse than this. And then the next time he would look a little worse. And it was really sad because he was so good. Um, and I did have the, I did get a, um, a bucket list 
bit, oops, sorry, just adjusting myself, um, in that uh, in 74, I think it was, I think 74 is right, might have been a little, might have been 76, let's say, I'll split it, 75, somewhere in there. Uh, when Manhunter was over, uh, Denny O'Neill, who was an editor at DC at the time, um, came to me and spoke to me about taking over the layouts for a book called Hercules Unbound. The uh, layouts, the first six issues were drawn by some unknown guy named Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. So, of course, I had nothing, I had no act I had to bother following. It was like, I, I mean, I went, look at this stuff. I wonder what he's inks. I'm like, oh my God. So, that's what we all said about Jose's stuff. So, uh, but it was layouts. I'd never done layouts. Um, but Woody was inking it, he was doing the finishes. And I thought, you know, the chance to work with Wally Wood, Wallace Wood, he didn't like the word the name Wally, I don't think. But this chance to work with Woody was really, it was irresistible. And so I said yes. First time I did layouts, I laid out issues six and seven of the magazine, of the comic. Woody did the finishes. They look most like Woody, as you would imagine. But boy, they look great. I never spotted black so well in my life. So I didn't spot any blacks on the art. I mean, it was all outline, all, all linear stuff. But, um, and after two issues, Woody got off the book. I don't know if he felt he was just, you know, tired of doing it, or I don't know what the score was. I, I was very disappointed. I do know that he told me that he really liked my layouts, so I gave him plenty to work with, and he was very happy with what I was giving him. So I'm, I'm delighted about that. That's one of my best memories about Woody, um, that he seemed to really enjoy doing this stuff. So uh, I, I drew the, there were four more issues of Hercules where he bit the dust. So I, I did layouts. Well, I did layouts on two more issues. And then the last two issues I penciled and inked myself. Um, so that's really, that's my one Woody story. I was working with him there, just seeing up at the office. But I think the one time, I don't remember what our conversation was. I was out in San Diego. I think the first time I ever went there in 1980, uh, I don't think Wheezy was with me that time and I, I i for a while i would go out there and i would do sketches i went there often i didn't go very regularly but I, every few years i would go and i would back then it was you could still get cheap flights across the u.s and so i would go there and i would sketch and i would charge for sketches and a sketch in new york would you might get charged 10 bucks for san diego about 40 bucks and so i would do drawings at san diego I didn't charge for signatures, but I charged for sketches. Yeah, I don't, do, I don't now, but I did full figures and stuff. I don't do either anymore. And what I would do is I would, I would make enough money in about a day and a half to cover my airfare and my hotel bill. And then I quit doing any drawing. And I just went off and had fun. So, uh, but I was there at the convention and there was some, somebody held, you know, there are a bunch of parties. Even back then, there were a lot of parties at the con in the evenings with publishers and stuff like that. And there was some party somebody held, don't remember who, might even have been DC. And I went there. I'm not really a party guy. Mostly stuff like that's so loud. You can't talk to anybody unless you scream. And after four or five days of San Diego, I'm pretty hoarse anyway. But I did go there. And I saw Woody. And he was sitting over in the corner just by himself. And I thought, this is fucking Wally Wood. Wallace Wood. Sitting in the corner because no one's talking to him. Holy crap. And so I went over and talked to Woody for a bit. I mean, he knew me because this was like 80. So we'd already done the work on Hercules. And, and I don't remember what we said. I think I had some trouble just trying to keep the conversation going. Um, but I'm glad I talked. That was probably the last time I saw him. 
But I just went over and talked to him for a while because I just thought Wallace Wood should not be sitting in the corner somewhere not being paid attention to. And so that's, those are my Woody stories. It, it brings up an interesting uh, point. Comics have such a history of like, you know, comics will break your heart. You know, from, from Jack Kirby to Wallace Wood to any number of professionals that, you know, we could probably bring up. Were you were you conscious of that uh, coming into comics or, or once you were into comics, you know, hanging out of continuity? I'm sure Neil Adams had some stories on how to cover yourself. But were you pretty conscious of taking care of yourself in this business? Was that something you and your peers? Howard Chaikin described it on the channel. Uh, we, we, we knew what Kirby and Dicka went through. We took the king's shilling willingly. Was that was that your uh, philosophy as well, Uncle Walt? I think, in, well, there were several things at work. One is I, I didn't know that much about how that all worked until I got into comics. Um, you know, Jack, when Jack went to D.C. Uh, in the early 70s, I was wild waiting for his first books to come out. You mentioned my books earlier when you ran off. You didn't mention Orion, one of my personal favorites. I love doing Orion. I like, I mean, I like Jack's work. Uh, I kind of feel that on a lot of it, I, I kind of get it, whatever that means. And so like doing Thor, especially the mythological stuff, doing Thor, doing Orion just seems right up my alley. And I just have a great time doing it. So um, I, you know, once I got into comics, especially when Jack came back to Marvel again, uh, and, you know, Ditka already left and gone off to work for Charlton and other things before I got into business, um, you could see what was happening. Uh, my feeling is that the 70s at Marvel, when I was doing Thor with Len Wein, 77, 78, I did layouts. Len wrote it. Uh, Tony DeZinega inked most of them. Joe Sennett inked one or two of them. That was awesome. And Tony did a great job. Tony, Tony did a very nice job. I, I, I did not fully appreciate at the time what I was giving him in terms of layouts. And I look back later at some of my Xerox and go, holy shit, Tony, I wish you were still alive <laughs> so I could thank you for saving my ass. But, um, uh, I, you know, we did take the King Shelling. Uh, part of it was that we, a lot of us in my generation, Howard among them, we all thought comics was a dying business. And we thought it was going to be gone in maybe 10 years because the sales were dropping. The direct market had not yet developed. And it just seemed like it was a doomed business. And so, but all the guys I knew, we all wanted to do comics. We didn't really care about the money. I mean, I wanted to make a living. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I'd rather not be living in penury with, a you know, one, one blob of coal in the coal in the furnace, you know, heating me while I'm wearing my fingerless gloves, trying to ink in the freezing, my freezing studio or my freezing ghetto apartment. Um, but uh, we just wanted to do comics and you could make a living at it. You didn't save a lot of money, but you could make a living at it, pay your rent uh, in New York City and uh, hang out with your friends. It was as, in many ways, it was as much a social set as it was a bunch of professionals working. Um, you know, I got into the business early enough, so I got to meet almost a lot of the really early guys. I never met Siegel and Schuster, never met um, uh, Bob Kane or Bill Finger, but I got to meet a lot of the guys who did, you know, the Joe Kuberts, guys like that, that were go back to almost the beginning. Sam Glansman, who went back to almost the beginning. Um, all those guys, were, even the other guys who I didn't meet were still around. And so I got to, I got to meet the history of comics because it was still alive when I got into the business. And that was 
inspiring. I mean, you know, it was a warning shot across your bow, I suppose, about how things could go. But it was um, it was worth doing because we wanted to do it. We, we knew it would be fun. It was fun. And it was great to tell stories and get paid for it. It's like being paid to play. So that worked out okay. I said, when I was doing Thor with Len, we'd kind of seen what happened to Jack. And so there's not a lot of new stuff in that run of Thor. For one thing, as of, well, I did it for a year, and we mostly went back and you know recycled old characters, uh, kind of the stuff I hadn't liked when I was a reader when I kind of were doing that. But it was still fun to do. And Len did some stuff with, that was a little different, some of this giant epic stuff that worked out okay. Um, I had some characters, some aliens, and they kidnapped Odin or something for the eighth time, I suppose. And uh, I, I took a lot of my stuff from uh, is it uh, Harry Clark, illustrator, Aubrey Beardsley um, disciple, who did the Tales of Imagination by Edgar Allan Poe illustrations and stuff like that. Really like Beardsley, but much more Rococo, much more elaborated. Really beautiful. I saw an original once. It was only this big. It was really like it was depressing because there's all this stuff. I went, really? I was expecting to be like six feet tall, so I wouldn't have to feel bad about not putting all this crap <laughs> in my drawing. But uh, I, uh, you know, we just did that. Partly it was, um, there used to be a, a Bell Telephone Hour. It was a bunch of specials on TV back when I was a kid. And they, they had a guy, Dr. Frank Baxter, and they usually be like Richard Carlson or some, some movie star wasn't doing so well, would be kind of the host. And they would show you, they had one on on in, on uh, uh, Cosmic Rays, a show, an hour, usually hour show, show on Cosmic Rays, a show on genetics and inheritance, a show on, you know, whatever, uh, solar power, solar energy, or the, the sun. And they were at one hour shows. They, they were shown, when I was in, in uh, elementary school, they'd bring one of these films in from the outside bring all the kids to the auditorium and they'd show the film. Man, we loved it. Of course, it was, they were out of class for an hour. That was great too. But it was, they were pretty interesting. And on the one, one of the things I always remembered about the one about uh, genes and uh, uh, chromosomes about your inheritance was they had one of those gambling uh, like dice cages. It's like a cage. Probably, I can't do it in the screen. I'm not far enough away, but it's probably about, well, almost two feet high. And it's, it's like wire, a wire cage pinched in the middle and then it opens up again. So it's identical to like a mirror image top and bottom and a flat top and a bottom. And you put stuff in it and you turn it like that and stuff falls down and presumably at random. And so what they did was they put in poker chips with numbers on them, one through how many, how many genes are there? Uh, or how many chromosomes are 26, 22, 26, something like that. They put in as many as, as there were. And then they turned it. And of course you got, all these different combinations of numbers coming up and it was very different every time you did it. Cause there were all that, you know, I don't know what the combinations and permutations of 26 is. It's a lot. And so that was their demonstration of how inheritance worked to a certain extent, all these recombinations. And that's kind of how I felt about comics in the seventies at Marvel is we were doing a bunch of recombinations of stuff, trying to find new combinations, trying to find interesting combinations. I got to draw the destroyer, which was awesome. My favorite Thor villain. Um, but, uh, but it, there were some guys like Starlin who invented Thanos. Uh, and I think he had a hand in Shang-Chi as well. There were several, you know, when them you know, who used to say that when, when there was a trend, like when all the martial arts films came in, but Marvel would get on it. It meant that the trend was now going down. And by the time DC did it, 
it meant the trend was over. <laughs> That's what we used to say. I'm sure DC, don't take me wrong. I'm sure you got in there in time. But, uh, um, and there were a few other things in the 70s, but a lot, a, a lot of it, of course, I mean, Jack's fourth world stuff. Um, but a lot of it, Marvel felt like we were kind of mm, almost treading water, but I mean, doing well, the book sold well, we weren't. But again, at that time, there was, you, a, a freelancer had no vested interest in how well a book sold. If I did, you know, Doctor Strange never sold very well. It's not to my knowledge. And um, whereas, you know, something like, well, let's see, the X-Men in the early days, it began selling better and better. Other books sold well. And yet, if you worked on a book like Doctor Strange or a book like the X-Men or Fantastic Four, you didn't make any more money. You got paid a flat rate and that was the end of it. And so, you know, in some ways you chose your books or if you had a chance to choose your books, one's characters that you liked. I mean, some of you just got an assignment from the editor and they would just say, okay, you're doing this now. And, uh, but at the time, it didn't matter what you were doing so much. Uh, in 82 or thereabouts, royalties came in and suddenly it made a big difference which book you were on as far as your financial gain. Um, my income went up by about a third from one day to the next when they brought royalties in. I think I was doing X Factor at the time, or I was about to do X Factor. And um, a little earlier, maybe. And also, well, when royalties came in, I was uh, in the middle of drawing X-Men Teen Titans, uh, which sold really well. And the great thing about that book, one of the great things about it, it was a great experience in general, is that when, it, when we started doing it, me, Chris, Terry Austin was inking it. It was the regular X-Men crew, except for me. So it was Terry, uh, or Chris, Terry, Glennis, mean Tom Orz or Glennis Oliver, then maybe Tom Orzakowski, uh, the letterer. So, and um, I was I became the penciler. It, it the choice would have been Dave Cockrum, but Dave was doing the X Men at that time, and there was simply no way Dave could do a monthly comic and an additional sixty pages to do the X Men Teen Titans book. Just couldn't he just couldn't do that much that fast. So um, they needed another artist. I ended up being the guy. Um, and we went in and talked to Jim Shooter when we started that book about getting maybe getting royalties on it because it was, we knew it was going to sell well. We figured, ah, trained monkeys could draw this book. It's going to sell like gangbusters. And and Jim had a lot of explanations for why it would really, they couldn't really give royalties. It would bankrupt the company. It would be as there wasn't enough money floating around, blah, 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 blah. And humorously enough, my wife went into DC and asked the same question. Got about the same answer. Well, another story for another time. But essentially, by the time we finished doing X-Men Teen Titans, a royalty scheme was in place. So I got a really nice check for having done the X-Men Teen Titans. It was really funny. One of my favorite stories. Um, I know, and it was, it took a while for people to figure out how that worked. Um, when Weezy was editing at Marvel, she edited at Marvel from 80 to 80, the end of 83, beginning of 84, four years. And she ended up edi editing John Buscema, Savage Sword of Conan, stuff like that. She loved John. I loved John. We loved John. He was this gruff old longshoreman who drew like a motherfucker. And so uh, she got him to do a limited series. I think it was the Ileana Magic series, I think. And he drew an issue. But John liked drawing barbarians. He did not like doing superheroes. 
And so after an issue, he said, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> so he, he, he bailed. I don't remember who took over. Sal, maybe? I don't remember who took over the, the last three issues. But your royalty check would come in nine months after the book was published. It took about nine months for the final fig sales figures on the newsstand to come in. They would have the, all the comic shop figures early, but the newsstand figures would get revised and revised and revised and finally come in and you'd be done. And so about nine months later, John got his royalty check on the first issue of Magic. And he came talking to Weezy. says, I see why you want me to do this book. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he did what he liked and he was good enough to do whatever he wanted. So what the heck? Were you um, were you also conscious of like creator rights coming up? Uh, you know, like I, I'm looking at like Alien and Heavy Metal, and we've talked to other guys, you know, Rick Veach and Steve Bissett, who talked about like Heavy Metal and becoming aware of copyright and you know retaining your copyright. Is that something that, again, you and your peers were plugged into thinking about? Well, we we all knew about it. I mean, some of my peers, I think, went and you know tried to do stuff about it. I never did much. Um, the, you know, the Comics Guild got formed about two years after I got into the business, maybe three years, Neil Adams and some other guys. And they tried to do kind of a, a creator rights thing. But they the my impression about the Guild is it never quite knew what it was, which is to say that, you know, they wanted companies to be part of it as well. But the companies saw it as a way to promote comics outside the ordinary fans. And freelancers saw as a way to maybe try to, you know, kind of unionize or at least get together and improve pay conditions. And those were two kind of antithetical, I've used that word three times now in this talk, but they were kind of opposite ideas about what to do. And so the, the, the guild ended up, I don't think it lasted more than a, uh, three, four years tops. Um, they gave out a bunch of awards for two or three years. That's what Manhunter won, Manhunter won awards. Uh, two years in a row, did did really well from the Shazam Award, which was the the, the Guild Award. But uh, it was, uh, you know, I, uh, I understand creators. I mean, I've done a couple of things I own myself, Ragnarok for one, Star Slammers for another. Um, but I've, I've done well enough. Uh, you know, I don't spend a lot of money. I buy I buy a lot of books. <laughs> I can see them over there. I think we can all relate to that there's, there's some of them right up there um and that's an entire wall full of books and this house is full of walls full of books so but they aren't that you know mostly they're not that expensive compared to like i don't know crack cocaine or you know other stuff you might want to spend your money on or expensive sports cars i don't have a lamborghini out there in the garage um well, i'm not sure i can afford a lamborghini holy cow but uh um i've made enough money and especially thanks to royalties that I haven't really worried too much about uh, owning the rights to the stuff that I've done. I just wanted to draw. This, I just wanted to draw stories I was interested in, and I've been fortunate enough. I've been able to do that by and large for my entire career. So, um, I mean, doing Ragnarok right now is a blast. At the same time, I've taken a break from it to do a couple of things I don't own. Um, where if I were smart. I'd still be doing Ragnarok that I would own and not doing all this other crap. But, uh, you know, I, I take jobs that appeal to me. And I, I don't have, I haven't had to go looking very much. I mean, I, nobody's offered me a, a run on Doctor Strange recently from uh, Marvel or anywhere. So I may, and I'm not sure. I, 
I don't think I would have the energy at this point to do a monthly comic book. I think that's just going to be more than I could really, really want to get my teeth into. Ragnarok comes out kind of irregularly, which is too bad because that affects sales if you don't get stuff out on a regular basis. But, but apparently, I don't care enough about that to really sit down on the board all the time and try and work. So I'm just I'm really a very lazy guy. Ask Jacob; he'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, right. Howard Howard will give you the full the full scoop on my my working life. You guys shared a studio for a while. We did. We had a great time. We had a, uh, in the late seventies, a bunch of us, uh, got together and decided we wanted to maybe have a common workspace. Name some uh, names, Walt, a, a bunch. Well, of the guys. initial, initial batch was Howard, uh, Val Merrick, Jim Starlin and me. Uh, we called ourselves upstart associates. Uh, we took almost no photos. So there's almost no record of any of that stuff, unfortunately. Um, you know, uh, whereas we didn't, we didn't see ourselves as, I don't know, artists with a capital A. We were working steps who were just trying to get, you know, get stuff done. And uh, Starlin, well, I forget who went first. Val moved back to Ohio, I think to Ohio at the time. He's not there anymore, but he moved back to Ohio. And Jim Sherman, who we knew from Continuity, came in and took over his space. And then right in the, in, within the first year or so, Starlin moved out. He moved upstate. He went. He moved to upstate, and uh, Frank Miller came in and took his spot. And then we were that was stable for some years, and then eventually Frank moved out, and Gary Hulgren, who was a Hulgren was a uh, an airbrush artist and one of the air pirates from the old days in comics underground art. Wow. And uh, Gary came in, and then uh, then finally Howard moved out to the West Coast. And uh, we just kept it at three after that. So it was Gary, me, and Jim. And uh, ultimately, well, uh, I, uh, I had an exciting time where uh, we were on the eighth floor of a building on West 29th Street between 7th and 8th Avenues, the fur district at that time. Don't know about now. And um, uh, eventually, we decided to move upstate ourselves. We've been living in the West Side for about 11 and a half years. So we bought a house and moved. And that took me out of the studio as well. Ultimately, I think what happened, Gary moved out eventually, moved out of the city eventually. And I think Jim just took over the entire space and lived there as a loft, really, uh, for a number of years. And eventually, uh, I think the landlord wanted to use that space for something else. And he cut a deal. Jim was a sharp negotiator. He cut a deal where Jim got a much higher floor loft and got to move up there and uh where i don't know if he's still there or not now but he he did he did well out of it so but it was a great place to work it was really uh dean haspiel was one of howard's assistants for a while lynn varley was, worked with frank i worked with howard too i think and uh, larry o'neill denny o'neill's son worked uh with uh, howard as well howard used assistants he was uh peter cooper worked for howard uh, in an earlier incarnation, Joe Jesco, I think, did some work for Howard. Wow. Um, you know, Howard was the kind of guy, he he could train assistants. I never could. I could never really use assistants and and make it work very well. I just wanted to do everything myself. But Howard was very good at delegating, was very good at, at training assistants to do backgrounds and this and that and all the stuff he, he wanted them to do. And, and several guys really got their start uh, from working for Howard. So, and he... You know, it was really the uh, whatever whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. 
And uh, working for Howard was a challenge, but it was challenging as well. And if you could take it, you could learn an enormous amount. What was so it was fun. It was fun to have those guys around. What was the vibe of the, of the studio? Uh, do you guys keep keep your heads down and work on your thing, or is Shaken uh, bumping you on the shoulder, showing you some fresh American flag pages, and you're showing him some some Thor stuff? Well, then, he's like he's like forty feet away. It's not like I has to he has to come over much. I mean, Howard was really Howard was and remains a workhorse. Um, he would come in, he would sit down at the board, he'd be off and running. Frank was pretty hard working as well. Jim was kind of hard to tell because Jim, Jim began living in the studio in his space. He built a small little room in the corner and sleep there. And so he was living in, in that space. So sometimes he was living and sometimes he was working. But he produced a lot of work. Um, I would come in. I'd read a book for three hours. And then I kind of get around to starting to draw. Uh, my work speed was directly proportional to my deadlines. So when I was doing Thor... Got to produce an issue in about four weeks, which I did more or less. But the first week of a new book, I'd be goofing off. I'd read a little. I'd tickle a plot. I'd do something. Second week, I'd write a little bit more. Maybe I'd start doing some layouts. The third week, I'd be maybe doing some pencils, trying to get some scripting, whatever. And the fourth week, I'd be flying through pages like I was a a steam locomotive with a snowplow in the front going through four feet of snow at 90 miles an hour. And uh, so I could work really ra rapidly if I needed to, but I, uh, I'm a lazy guy. I don't like to have to work that hard. So I, I would try to concentrate on my hard work in that one week. And then of course, at the end of that week, I'd be so burned out. I'd take the next week off before I got back to my, and then I only had three weeks left to get the comic book done. So uh, I was, uh, I was probably the laziest guy in the studio. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, you talk about Howard training uh, assistants and things. You, you've taught cartooning at uh, SVA for a, a long time. How did that come about? What's that experience like? Um, any, any wisdom you can impart on wannabe cartoonists God. that are watching this? I, I have no wisdom. I, I, one <laughs> thing I've learned by being an old man is I have no wisdom at all. Um, I will say that one of my students was John Polion, who was just an outstanding, he was outstanding when he was a student. Unbelievable as a professional, and his loss has been a great loss to to everybody. Um, I think it really happened. Let me think about this for a second. Jack Woodruff was the studio, was the uh, head of the department, and uh, I, I think Joe Orlando was a good friend of of Jack's, and uh, he may have called me up out of the blue. You know, I taught there three times. I, I taught and then I had about five years and I said, okay, I think I'm done. I was living up here by the up, upstate by then. So it was like an hour and 20 minutes to get into the city and get to the school. Uh, so I had to drive it in the morning. I mean, I taught like at noon, so I could get up and get going by 1030. And, uh, but my, I had a class around about five years and I said, okay, I think I'm done. And then I blew off for a couple of years. And then one day I got a call and my problem is I can't remember now whether which one of these happened first. I, the one of the times, one of the things that did happen was I got a call. Uh, Tom, uh, uh, Tom, oh, Tom, I've lost your last name. Oh, I lose names now. It's terrible. Um, Tom was head of the department, probably still is, and called me up out of the blue. It turned out Carmine was supposed to teach a couple of uh, teach a class, and he and the school had kind of a contretemps, and. 
the result was that on the first day of Carmine's class, he didn't show up. That was basically his resignation. He just said, I'm not, I'm not doing this. We didn't bother telling anybody in advance. I think he's probably pissed and was just going to show them. So I got a call saying, could you take Carmine's class? I taught you know, before. And so I thought about it. I hadn't done it for a couple of years. Like, okay, I'll go back and do it. So I went back and taught for three years, blew off again, then went back and taught for two more years. And I kind of said, I think I'm done. And I think, I mean, that was about five years ago. And part of it is that I do not storytell visually the way modern comics are story told. Um, you know, the same way I go back and look at Eisner's work. And I really like it. And I really love the way he tells the story, but it's not at all contemporary to the work I was reading in the 60s when I was formed as a creator. And I'm sure that's true of my work now. I get stuff, I get comments like, uh, gee, pretty good for nostalgia, stuff like that If you on the work that I do. Now, I like the work that I do still, and I don't think I really want to change it especially, so I'm okay with that. But it does mean that I began to feel that I could not teach students how to do work in a modern industry. They'd be better off with younger teachers who had learned 20 years ago instead of 50 or 60 years ago how to tell stories. So that's why I finally said, I'm, I'm retired and I'm done. This is the end of it. But I had a great time doing it. Uh, I ran a very loose class. Um, I, I'm not sure what my students thought of it. Uh, some of them have been very kind, but I don't know for sure. Um, I was teaching. Klaus Janssen was teaching. I think Klaus is still teaching. Klaus is very structured. His approach to teaching is very structured. So he had a syllabus, and they learned the nuts and bolts. I don't know what year he was teaching when they first began. I was teaching, I think, juniors and seniors, a mixed class of the both. And... Uh, I'm anything but organized in that regard. So what I would do largely is I would hand out assignments, one week, two week assignment. If it was two weeks, you could bring stuff in the middle of the assignment, show me what you're doing. And when they brought in their pages and there were a variety of different things, um, things I thought you needed to work on or just exercises to learn storytelling. Uh, we would tape them all the pages up on the web, you know, they'd be large sheets tape them up on the wall and I would walk around and look at all of them. And usually for a single assignment, a lot of guys would make the same mistake. I say, guys, I usually had one girl per class. I think there may be more now, but there was one, I, but I usually had one girl in the class and often they were among my best students in each class, which I thought was quite interesting, but I'd walk around and you could see some of the same mistakes in the, in the art, in the storytelling, whatever. And so I would essentially extemporaneously do a lecture about the stuff and go through each page and kind of cover what I saw, what I thought they could work on. You know, you don't try to give, you don't look at a page and go, wow, there are 45 things wrong with this page because who's gonna remember 45 things? So that's when I review portfolios, which I haven't done in a long time now, but I would, same thing. I would try and find one or two things I thought you can work on this because you can remember this. And so that was really how my class went. It was pretty extemporaneous. Uh, the first year I taught, I had a spectacular class. Um, John Paul Leon, uh, Kevin McCarthy, Brett Lewis, 
oh, I've forgotten Chris's last name. I'm sorry, Chris, uh, who was a phenomenal drawer and just a speed demon for putting stuff down. Um, Brandon Perlo became a computer modeler later. Uh, I don't remember Sean Martin, but was in my first class. I taught Sean, but I don't remember if he was in the first class or not. Uh, Jody Nielsen, who was the one girl who was really good. She did great caricatures, great faces, and a lot of great other stuff. So I just thought, wow, this is fantastic. Wow, what a class. So it's going to make me look good no matter what I do. And I never had a class like that again. <laughs> I had classes with a couple of good students, and some of them were very good. But that class was just, that was on beyond zebra. It was just such a phenomenal class. And it was, it was great. But I did enjoy it. I enjoyed, I mean, you know, I had some students who were quite good, <clears throat> some who were pretty mediocre, some who were just wasting their parents' money going to college, marking time before they had to go out and get a job at Walmart. Or if their parents were wealthy, maybe they would never have to have a job. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't grill them on that. Um, as long as you weren't disruptive in class, I sort of figured by college, you should know why you're there. Now, I'm, I sort of knew I was there the first time in college. I'm not sure I really knew. So I, I don't, I'm not sure that's fair for the students. But I just figured by the time you're 18, 19, 20, you should know why you're here. If you don't want to be here, you don't want to do the work, I'm not going to put a gun to your head and make you do it. As long as you're not disrupting the guys that do want to learn, I'm fine with it. I'll give you the grade you deserve when we're done. And uh, I had one kid, very sweet kid. I don't know that he's, I don't remember his name. I don't know that he said 20 words in the entire two semesters. And he was a huge manga fan. And I was never able to break him with that. And it wasn't so much I wanted to break him, but it's because he didn't really understand structure at all. He understood the surface of manga. So I'd get drawings with giant eyes and a nose would be like that. And the mouth would be here with no chin or the mouth would be open with no chin. And it wasn't very good manga. And what it wasn't was it had showed no understanding of the structure under the face, for example, to lock these symbols in to make them work. And I was never able to really persuade him in some way. I wasn't able to reach him. I mean, he was fine. He was a sweet kid. Um, but I wasn't able to really get him to improve. I did have one thing that was great where one of the kids brought in some work. It was nice work. And then somebody else came to me after class and he explained to me this guy's stuff was a pretty much a cold swipe from some manga. Now, I don't know. I mean, I know a little manga. I know some. I'm a big fan of uh, Lone Wolf and Cub and all the work those guys did. I'm a big fan of some other stuff as well. Uh, Shiro, uh, Appleseed, some of that stuff, things like that that I've seen. But, you know, there's a billion pages of manga out there that I have not seen and never will. And uh, apparently he was swiping from some manga that I had not seen, and uh, but somebody else in the class had seen it. So we had a chat about that um, afterwards. But it was still, it was a lot of fun. And I, I had some good, because I've got a half dozen kids. I say kids, they're in their mid-40s at this point, but they're still kids. They'll always be kids to me. And uh, they stay in touch, which I'm, which delights me. I'm really, I'm, I'm delighted when I hear from them. And, and uh, some of us are friends on Facebook. Um, so we keep in, in semi-regular touch. And some of them have become really good friends. John Paul was a really good friend. It was sad to lose him for a lot of reasons. That was one of them. There's a lot of uh, 
art instruction, comic instruction, stuff that we were able to take advantage of even from from like our young age. And Walt, I I wonder like some of that Star Slam stuff. Uh, how did did you even know that these drawings were done, you know, twice up or anything like that? Like like and do you even remember how you discovered that, you know, that that comic pages were drawn bigger <sighs> than carbon paper or whatever? Uh, I, I don't remember when I discovered it. I know my very earliest comics that I drew, I drew five pages of a Dr. Strange in about 1965. Uh, the very last Ditko issue of Dr. Strange where, uh, Dr. Strange witnesses the duel between Dormammu and the, and eternity, not really a duel, but, uh, where Dormammu jumps into eternity and explodes and, and, uh, it, you know, it was half a comic. And I felt it was way too short for a story as astoundingly enormous as attacking eternity. It was too small. Now, of course, everything went back to normal later. Dormammu showed up later. I'm sure eternity showed up later. It didn't really matter. But at the time, I thought, oh, man, this should be. So I started drawing the ending. I thought it should have shown. And uh, I, I took one panel of Steve's work where, in truth, it is not, it is not something uh, Doctor Strange, I... Uh, should humble or should attack or something like that. It is eternity. And he points to, and then he jumps into him. And, and so I took from that point, I went and began doing a much more elaborate where he calls a bunch of his allies and all sorts of stuff's going on. Some of those God awful writing you've ever read. I was actually writing balloons. It, the, you know, it makes Stanley look like Shakespeare. <laughs> kind, of kind of a, kind of a Stanley isms and they're just <laughs> awful. So um, I got a page to up on my Facebook. If you go back on my Facebook page, uh, there's an old guy. I have a gallery of old drawings, which they go up to about 70 from 78, my early professional work, but I'm not quite, quite sure why I went that far, but it includes stuff going back to elementary school up to somewhere in there. And so my parents saved a lot of stuff. Um, and I think I have those pages, those pages are around somewhere, but they were done on my, on my thing on my dad's paper with that bad, you know, printing on one side and the drawing on the other inked with a pen tell which is about the only kind of felt tip they had back then that wasn't a giant marker. And uh, I didn't know about whiteout. Um, in fact, well, a couple of things. I don't know when I saw my first comic book page. The first one I can remember, I was a science fiction reader back then. And I read, read I read all the old classic guys and Heinleins and Asimovs and Clarks and stuff like that. Zalad and the new guys, what was it called? The new wave at the time it was like Harlan and Roger Zelazny, Chip Delaney read their stuff. And uh, I think a lot of my visual ideas come from that reading as much as it comes from looking at other artists. Um, if you remind me about the Fantastic Four time fight, I'll tell you about that in a second. But I was at a, the first science fiction convention I went to was the Worldcon in St. Louis in 1969, Labor Day weekend. And uh, I'd never seen, been to a convention. And it was just enormous. Now, compared to San Diego, it's like this big, but it was enormous to me. And they had films all night. They showed uh, stuff like that. I was just, it was just, it was amazing. And at one point, Wanaku dealer's room, I saw a Joe Kubert Viking Prince page a dealer had for sale. Now that was old stuff. So that was probably twice up. So it was huge. And it was 40 bucks. Might as well have been a million bucks as far as I was concerned. I did not have 40 bucks. I have, I have regretted that page, for, but except I don't, you know, I didn't have it. It's not like I could have gotten it. So 
just one of those things. You learn this stuff as you go along. But that's why I, it's possible that convention is where I saw artwork for the first time. Um, and then I, was, I went and visited D.C. in 70. And, of course, then I was in production. I saw, I saw Murphy Anderson inking a page. So I, I don't remember what. And Neil Adams was working on penciling on a, or inking penciling, I think, on a Green Lantern, Green Arrow page. So I did see artwork at that point, And I did have some sense of what, uh, what that was. And so after that, I began doing my work on larger sheets, uh, mostly, not always. Uh, I did a, some of my stuff. I did a thing in 67. Well, I hadn't gone to New York yet. You know, that's right. I hadn't seen this stuff yet. I was still, I did a bit of an Iron Man versus Titanium Man story for about six or seven pages. And that was all on typewriter paper. That was, which is, by that time, it was clean on both sides. I wasn't using the old used stuff. But, uh, and I didn't, uh, when I was at art school, um, I had, well, let me back up. When I was at Amherst, I came up with an idea for a Thor story that I really liked. And it was a mixture of Marvel mythology, real mythology, and my own thoughts. And uh, I think I, I think I titled something really awful, like, for if the Odin sword be drawn, you know, like how many prepositions can I cram in here or other words? And uh, the Odin sword was, it would have been called the over sword originally, but it appeared in the back. So that became the giant sword that they used in, in Thor occasionally, or it, it played a role and stuff. I gave up an idea for that. And I um, began drawing it when I was at, at RISD my first year. And I, I bought a sketchbook that was, or drawing paper, it was spiral bound. It was about, mm, what's that, 14 inches high, maybe. Not quite as big as real pages uh, and a little wider in proportion. But I began drawing it in that. And I the first couple are on individual on right-hand pages. And then I began drawing them on facing pages so you'd see them the way you would see them in a comic book. And I, you know, I, I did about 20, 25 pages that way, inked with rapidographs. I didn't know about crow quills or anything that's of brushes at the time. It's all rapidographs. This is my first year in art school, 69. And I didn't know about whiteout either. So there are all these star fields, and they're all star fields where I would circle <laughs> each star with like a number two rapidograph. I didn't know about brushes. And then I would I would fill in all the black with a number four rapidograph, working all around the stars. And I mean, just insane. I look like I go, oh my God, <laughs> I got to draw in 12 comics in the time it took me to finish this star field. But, uh, Somewhere after that, I do not remember when, I discovered Whiteout while I was at, while I was at RISD, and I discovered Crowquill. I began using Crowquill, Hansel 102, Crowquill pens while I was at RISD. Never used a lot of brushes. I've, I've done some brush work. Um, I do some now. I, don't, I, don't, I do not eschew them completely, but I do use them. I still prefer pen largely, but although on covers, I will often go to a brush because it gives me a different feel on a cover that I like. So... Uh, I will do that brush work on covers a lot. And also it's bigger. So if I screw it up, it'll all get shrunk down. So you won't see my mistakes. Well, have you saved uh, most of your original art? Yep. <laughs> yes, I have. What? Uh, I what? never had to sell it. I sold, I sold a page in 1977 or thereabouts. Splash page for a Dr. Fate story I did. Um, I don't regret selling it in part. Part of me does regret selling it. Part of me doesn't. I got a lot of money for it at the time, over 200 bucks, maybe a little more than that. Um, but then I, as I've told people, then I spent the money. I didn't have the page. I thought, well, what was the point of that? So I didn't do it again. 
Um, I will say that if I had been living in penury or if I'd really not done very well or if I needed the money, I would have sold stuff in a heartbeat. But I've been lucky enough to not be in that situation. Um, so, you know, uh, I haven't. So I've, I, sometimes I've traded pages. I've got a really lovely David Mazzucchelli Daredevil cover uh, that I traded for uh, one of my Thor covers. Uh, I have a couple of lovely Frank Miller Sin City pages that I traded. Frankie wanted a RoboCop Terminator page, and I traded for that. So I have traded occasionally with people whose work I like um, or pages that I like. So I will do that. I have done that. I don't do it much. I have done that occasionally. So, but I do have most of it. It's kind of amazing, you know, like we, we often talk about, uh, talk to different artists or, you know, kind of lament the people that go of pages decades ago. And now you look at the original art market and it's like, how could you have parted with a Watchmen, you know, all the Watchmen art or, or something? I know, so, I know. Unbelievable. For the Well, if I get, pounds, if I suddenly crash and burn, maybe I'll sell the cover for 337 for 337. I should be able to make a few bucks out of that. But uh, it's, it's our know, great benefit, though, because. I assume that's part of why we're able to get artist editions of your work. That's exactly. That's why I have so many. Uh, that's why there's so many of mine out there, is I did have the art that they were able to use. And in some cases, like Battlestar Galactica, uh, Nick Berucci put that out from Dynamic uh, a couple of years ago. And that one was done partly what I did. That's my first writing and com- my first comic book writing. I wrote four of the last five issues. One of the issues of fill in. But I wrote the other four, as well as penciled them, Klaus inked them. And I traded pages with Klaus. So I have the complete, those complete issues of those four comics. So I have all that, and they're all in that book. Um, I, I, some of the issues as a result, I have almost no pages from, or maybe no pages that I would have had. But it was worth it to me to trade them, and Klaus was you know, very amenable to that. So it was very sweet of him. Do you remember what the division Thanks, was? <laughs> Say again. Uh, do you remember what the division was uh, at at Marvel or the big two in general when it came to divvying up the pages? Like I don't remember the specific numbers. It was more or less dependent on page rates. So you know, pencilers got paid more than inkers got paid. So the pages were divided up more or less on that basis. But I don't know if that would have meant. Well, back then, what twenty-two pages of comics? Now it's twenty. But back then, twenty-two pages of comics. So. I'm guessing maybe uh, 12 and 10, maybe 13 and 9, something like that. I don't remember. Initially, um, I think the penciler got to go in and pick pages. And, of course, they took all the good pages. I understood that. Um, And then the inker would get less good pages. And in the very beginning, the writer got two pages. The inker, the penciler took so many the inker a little less, the writer got two. And there were, of course, he often got the pages where nobody, everybody was talking, nobody was in costume. <laughs> but there was a bit of grousing about that among the artists, pencilers and inkers, about the writers getting any pages back. Um, and there was, I don't know if anybody actually ever did this. Sometimes books were so late that the balloons would be pasted on top of the original art. And there were those artists who wanted to go back, scrape off the balloons, put them in a plastic bag and mail them back to the writer. And that was what he was going to get. From the <laughs> I don't know if that ever happened, but there was some discussion about it. And eventually the companies uh, quit getting pages to the writers. And eventually, because the anchors were getting kind of short shrift on good pages, uh, they began to use a, a lottery system. 
not so much in the number of pages, but how to divide up the pages among the inker and the penciler. I don't know how it's done now. I haven't, I haven't done anything for somebody else to ink for a while. So I don't know what the uh, split is and how that's handled. Well, you were around for some some big booms in comics, uh, the, the 1986 kind of era that, that brought a lot of audience, man, the speculator boom of the 90s. What was the, uh, what was the, you don't got to give numbers, anything like that, but what was the most kind of lucrative comic? I'm thinking about, like, you know, you said uh, Teen Titans, X-Men, then there's uh, Robocop. Terminators coming out, the Speculator yeah, boom. Yeah, it's 91, Some of that Bravura stuff was probably like right when the bubble was about to burst. So, so what was the best best jobs? Cyber Force Zero. Cy- was oh, there it is. That, there it is. You, that you, you was, know, that's what I was it. about to say. No doubt. Yeah, <laughs> I was yeah. about to say Cyber. <laughs> that came out right before everything went to hell, and I I think uh, I didn't have to work for a year after that comic book came out. I do not remember what I made on it. It was a lot of money, um, and that's my lazy nature. Instead of going. I should draw 12 comics like this and make 12 of these checks. I said, oh, great, a giant check. I'm done. And so I didn't do any work for a while. I should have, I, or not much. I should have gone back and worked really hard right then. But, uh, you know, I'm not motivated enough by money to for that to really influence what I'm doing much, um, which is in the, sort of in America is a terrible thing to say. And I would probably have a lot more work out if I were more motivated by money. But it's just not mostly, it, you know, and, and, or if I were a lot poorer, if I hadn't made money during my career enough to kind of, you know, have a bit of a nest egg and, and keep working. And of course, now I'm on Social Security, so thumbs up. Uh, I really get to, you know, kind of pick and choose. But um, mostly I'm really motivated more by the job uh, itself uh, than anything else. But the, I think Cyber Force Zero. I, I do not remember the numbers of that check or the X-Men Teen Titans check, but I suspect that Cyberforce sold better. Um, and uh, that was actually a lot of fun. That was, it was fun partly because I was trying to do an image comic. So if you, literally, so if you go back and look, every page is like a splash page with one or two inset panels. So I get my splash page. There. And in one case, it's just a truck driving by or an ambulance driving by. It's, there's no <laughs> characters on it or the little insets here and there. But I got, I tried to do one big image on a page or in one case, a double page spread in the beginning. And then, you know, do the storytelling in small little panels to the thither and yon. It was kind of fun. We began this YouTube channel uh, by just putting old issues of uh, Wizard Magazine uh, un- under the microscope, going issue by issue. And uh, it begins, you know, like right after that Todd McFarlane Spider-Man. So the speculation mm-hmm. boom is on. All the ads reflected that. There were 900 numbers you could call for, for tips on the most <laughs> valuable comics that's going to come out the next month. The very first adults in the room in any of the interviews was Walt Simonson and Louise Simonson who are saying that this is, this is a bubble. This is going to burst uh, in the midst of like all these people who are like, Listen, we sold 300,000 last year. There's no reason to think we can't sell 600,000 the next year. <laughs> I'd guys, forgotten that. I'd forgotten we were interviewed by Wizard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you guys were the most responsible responsible sounding people in the whole thing. Not much of a question there, just an observation. We were we were probably the oldest people they interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say, I mean, uh uh Wizard, the Wizard offices were not far from where we live originally, a long time ago now. And uh, uh, Garib was over here once. He talked to us about doing a 
uh, he said, she said kind of column for Wizard. But the thing is that Weezy and I, we don't disagree on a whole lot. It wouldn't make a very interesting column for the two of us to fight about stuff because we don't. Um, so that was, I, I, it was a nice idea from Garib. We were the wrong guys to do it. Um, and the other thing I remember that was, well, there are two things about Wizard that were funny. One was Garib wanted me to draw a cover. This was the early days they used to do characters and they put that wizard hat on them. And he wanted me to draw a cover. But I don't remember the pay was, it wasn't bad. It might've been as much as a thousand dollars. It was any more than that, maybe less, but something like that. But he also wanted the original. And that was, a, as far as I was concerned, that was a deal breaker. That's why there are no Walt Simonson covers on Wizard Magazine. Um, I don't know if they, I don't think they kept that up in the long run, but they did, they were doing it then. It's like the second issue. Um, and uh, the other thing that was funny uh, is for a while, they ran a versus column where they would say Wolverine versus, who's some DC character, the Deathstroke, the Terminator, or some DC character, they would cross and they and what they would do is they get a drawing from somebody and then they would have a tech i gather this all explained to me they had a text that would explain how the fight would go and one or the other would win and i got a call one day from a i think a pretty young guy i'm not sure he knew who i was but he wanted me this is about 20 years ago he wanted me to do a drawing of thor fighting orion this is when i was doing orion and i, I and so i had to have him explain to me how it worked because I really had no idea what they, I hadn't seen Wizard for a while and not they're doing. And what they were doing was, you know, this text thing. I said, well, how is that decided? So, well, we get together in a room and shoot the breeze and we work out a fight and then we're, then we're done. And I said, okay, here's how this is going to work. I love Thor, but I'm drawing Orion, writing, writing and drawing Orion right now. So if you're going to do a story in which Thor wins and Orion loses, I'm not doing it. Because right now, Orion's my guy. If you want to do a story in which they tie or a story in which Orion wins, I'm good with it. I'll do your drawing. But you go talk to whoever you have to talk to and <laughs> let me know. I never heard from the guy again. <laughs> so I, knew who was, I, I think I knew who was going to win the fight in the, in the wizard world. But I don't want to be drawing that. You know, Jack was gone by then. Uh, and that means I'm one of the few guys around who's done Thor and done Orion. And I don't want to put my imprimatur on my guy getting his ass kicked. So I, they never, I, I have to say, they could have called me back and said, oh yeah, sure. Oh, Orion's going to win. <laughs> and, and then they just could have written it with Thor winning. And what would I do about it? But I, it was nice enough of the, for them to not call me back when they, you know, when it was clear that was not how it was going to go. I appreciate, and I was grateful. I appreciated they didn't try to flim flam into doing a drawing for them. In sort of a later issue, when when uh, the the legend imprint is announced, uh, there's the conversations between you know Mignola, Frank Miller, like all those guys, John Byrne, and your name is brought up a lot uh, in in those those interviews as like being a potential legend guy. But then they're like, oh, he, well, he's got something else going on, and this turns out to be bravura. It's, mm -hmm. it's a Starlin, Shaken, uh, you couple other guys um what was that experience like and were you able to benefit from the the speculation uh market at, at that era or, or or was it just a a little little bit past past the prime when a people little past prime a little past prime by the time that stuff happened or by the time Riviera happened um i don't really know i've i i don't remember i i think i was with we had a lunch maybe with mike mignola mike richardson frank 
me, I've forgotten who else, out in San Diego, I think. Um, and uh, sort of it never, never quite worked out at my end. I don't know quite know. I don't know why now. I don't remember. Um, the Bravira thing came along. It was like Chaikin uh, and Starlin, old friends of mine, uh, sort of generations of mine. And so uh, I did that. I don't know, at least at the time, I don't remember ex if I was asked about being in legend, it might've been after Revere was started, but I'll tell you the truth. I don't remember how that all worked out in that, at that time. I did do one legend comic eventually because I did the Star Slammers, a mini series for Bravira, which I, again, was very slow getting done. And uh, um, by the time I got four issues done, Bravira, and I think maybe Malibu was starting to collapse. So I think maybe Malibu was kind of going down at that point. So I, it didn't happen. And uh, about a year later, I was able to publish the fourth, fifth, and final issue of that series through Dark Horse under the Legend imprint. So at least it all did come out as a unit eventually. And, uh, and I had better coloring on that. The first couple of uh, Bravira comics were not very well colored, but it took a while to get that squared away. I wish I'd gotten that squared away earlier, but then when the book, I guess all that stuff was reprinted, um, IW eventually reprinted all the Star Slammer stuff, including that miniseries, the original work I did when I was at art school and the graphic novel. And uh, Len O'Grady went back and recolored the miniseries. Like, recolored the graphic novel, he followed, the coloring in the graphic novel was done by me and Wheezy. So I'm fairly happy with that coloring. Um, so Len pretty much used that as a model for the coloring for the graphic novel, but he recolored the uh, uh, the miniseries. Did a really nice job with it. So at least it, it came out in a way I was very happy with. I have uh, one, one more question that I, I have on my list. And uh, well, you mentioned telling us the Fantastic Four time travel story and how that oh, right. came about. Uh, tell us about that. That's right. Um, I had an idea for, I was going to, of course, have Reed and Doom fight. And I, I had an idea for a fight in through time and had to work out the graphics. And where that really came from is from the science fiction writer, the late science fiction writer, Roger Zelazny. Roger wrote a book. I didn't meet him very briefly a million years ago. Um, in fact, I like to digress. So here's one more digression. Uh, when I was in art school, uh, he had a book. Well, he wrote a book called Creatures of Light and Darkness. It came out after Lord of Light. Lord of Light's one of my all-time favorite books, bar none. Creatures of Light and Darkness, it's really neat. It kind of feels to me almost like a summary of what I want the book to be, like an abstract. It's not a very long book. I'd like to have been maybe twice as long. All the same stuff, but Roger's writing was so gorgeous. I would love to have had more of it to read in that book. But there was a scene in that, or two things in that book came out of it. One is, there's a character named the Iron Gen. I think it's called the Iron, the Iron General. I'm going to call him the Iron General. I'm sure we'll get letters if it's not. And he has an eight-legged robot horse, and when he rides it, every step the horse takes, every gallop, goes twice as far as the previous one. And it is said that with a proper warm-up run, it could circumnavigate the universe in a single bound. And what would happen after that? No one's really sure, which I thought was just a lot of Roger's writing had this great poetic quality to it. So I thought that was fabulous. So I did a silkscreen when I was at art school. I like silkscreen. Can't paint for beans, but I can silkscreen. So I silkscreen an iron general, a steel general, steel general. I silkscreen the steel general. And uh, 
it was large. It was probably 14 inches, 16 inches across. And it's about 12, 13 colors. And I really liked it. And I was in a science fiction club in Washington, D.C., the Washington Science Fiction Association, WISFA, when I was at art school, and before I was in art school and during art school. And one of the guys in the club, Alan Huff, maybe? Tough to get these names now. Alan, I think the uh, Lord of Light may be dedicated. He was a friend of uh, Roger's. Roger lived in Baltimore at the time. So I guess Alan maybe did too. And so I gave Alan a copy of the print. I made about 15 of them. I make a lot of them, 15 of them. And I gave him one to give to Roger. And uh, sometime after that, I got uh, a hardcover. Um, might have, I don't remember if it was called The Doors of His Face, The Lamps of His Mouth. A collection of short stories of Roger's that were very well known back in those days. Rose for Ecclesiastes and some other ones. And Roger had written uh, a little note inside that said to Walter Simonson, whose imagination spans galaxies, does this, does that. It was a quote from the seal general from the Creatures of Light and Darkness. That he had, so I'm thrilled to have that. And the other thing is, in that book, there's a scene where there's this warrior and he's fighting... I have the visualization of a great serpent kind of thing. Not exactly a serpent. I don't remember the how this is earlier in the book, and later you find out what's going on. And uh, they're fighting in time, and there's this giant city they're part they're in, and the city is in ruins because they're winking in and out of time throughout the history of this city, just fighting each other, blasting each other, doing whatever. And it's I I had this great visualization of this dance this incredibly elaborate dance through time going on inside these ruins. And that's what gave me the idea to do a time fight with Reed and Doom, where you would have to go through the book, like a almost like a choose your own adventure, but go to different pages in order to read the whole thing in order. The, the book is divided into essentially every page, more or less, the middle page into two sections. One that's just straight a straight timeline that you just read by reading the comic normally, and the other these strips that are mounted on top of the time side of the timeline, the regular timeline page, where Reed and Doom are fighting, and they're jumping from minute to minute. Now, in the in Zelazny's book, it's like centuries. These things have been fighting for centuries, but and I, it's possible that the great serpent-like thing I'm remembering, it may have been what was left of God. I was just I remember reading going, it was, it was just amazing. I didn't do that in Fantastic Four, but the idea of jumping around from book to book and going or from page to page was really inspired by this deep time fight that Roger had invented in his book. And so I, I same, shamelessly borrowed the idea and converted it into comics. And that was, that was a, that was a pain in the neck to do. I had to, uh, what I did was I took layout, full-size layout paper and I laid out the left two thirds of each page, which was a contemporary, the, the chronological story. And I drew all that, or pen, I laid it all, all out. And then I took long strips of paper and cut them to make long strips. And then I drew the fight of Reed and Doom on those pieces of paper. And then I lay them all down in my living room, laid the major sheets, and then I began laying the strips down on them and moving them around until I could figure out which in which order I thought would work best for both the, well, the chronological stuff obviously was just straight through, but the time fight would work best bouncing from page to page. And I put a clock on each page 
and a, and then a clock in the in the fight itself, so you could know which page to jump to next in order to read the next part of the fight. So that was fun. It was really it was uh, uh, yeah, just an intellectual exercise to get a story done. But it was it's one of my favorite issues of stuff I've done because it. I I have to say that I I've never seen anybody else do something like that. And what there are billions of comics at this point. How many comics can you say? Well, nobody else has done this. When, it's when, pretty cool. When you're taking the time to, to do all that and put this, that sort of thing together, is this how the uh, the Art Adams trilogy of issues comes out, man? You need need a little little drawn? Well, I was going to take a break from the FF, except, of course, I burned all my time. So by the time Arthur was done, I was right back in deadline hell again. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the original idea. Pulled, that was the idea originally. Pulled those uh, those time travel issues off the stands, man, on the strength of some big-ass dinosaurs, some crazy guns, some cool fantastic cars going through time. Jimmy, I think we have our marching orders. we got to do Cyber Force Zero. Yes. we got to do the time travel story. <laughs> Absolutely. As complete episodes. And I'll tell you one more quick story if please, you got the time. Please. This is from, the, from Arthur's Issues. Originally, uh, when I was going to do this fill-in, uh, these three issues, I thought I would just do, I thought I would use the, I don't know, I don't even know where the idea to substitute the FF came from. I don't know, I don't know where that came from. Just the idea I had, I guess, maybe that way Arthur could do something a little different. So I was going to use Marvel's four most popular characters at the time, which I think were Ghost Rider, Spider-Man, Wolverine, and the Punisher. And so I, I talked to Arthur about it, we're going to do it. And Arthur said, I don't like the Punisher. I liked him when he was a villain, don't like him as a hero. I said, hey, I don't care. <laughs> Who do you want to draw? How about the Hulk? The Hulk on a motorcycle. And I said, okay. Arthur, Arthur's ideas, they were like you get from many artists. They were visual ideas. They weren't story ideas. So, and I'm happy to try and fit a story around any visual idea you want to give me. So I got those squared away. I was down uh, in, Carol Kalish was a direct market guru at Marvel at the time. I knew Carol. I was down, Kurt Busick was there. Kurt remembers this differently than I do, but that's okay. Um, but the, the, the upshot of it was at some point, I don't, I didn't think this was Kurt's idea, but it might've been one of the characters might've been Kurt's. I don't remember. I don't remember his, his story of it either, but the idea of being a new fantastic four was really the last thing I put on that story. I didn't begin by saying, we're going to do a new fantastic four and use these four characters. It was just, you look to use these characters. And at some point I went, wait a minute, we've got the Hulk for the thing. We've got Ghost Rider for Johnny Storm. We got what Spider-Man. I said Spider Spider-Man, maybe for Mr. Fantastic. At least he's a, a bright guy, science guy. I'm not sure how Wolverine and Sea Storm <laughs> fit together. I don't want to go there. But uh, but it was close enough that I thought it's like the new Fantastic Four. And that was like the last thing. I mean, I had I hadn't got the plot squared away, but the idea that we had these four characters. I would do a new Fantastic Four. But that's why the Punisher's not in there. But in the last issue, I told Arthur, look, Arthur, Punisher's this popular character. We have to work him in, in a cameo. Just in a cameo. I don't care. We won't do anything with him. And Arthur said, well, as long as I don't have to draw him. And I said, we don't have to draw him much. So we put a chest shot circle on the cover just of the skull with what? The most commercialist exploitative appearance in comics or whatever we called it. I, the, I think I made fun of the, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I made fun of the, the, the line that the world's greatest comic magazine, the world's most exploitative comic magazine, whatever, all three of them had different copies across the top. And then inside 
the Punisher shows up in a helicopter at the end. He's inside the chopper, so you don't see the skull. You just get his head. You don't really see his. I think maybe he might have had a skull on the chopper. I don't remember what Arthur drew there. But he shows up and he goes, well, looks like everything's all done here, and then leaves. So he, it's really a completely useless cameo. But it was just done really for that reason. It was just so much fun to do. So we enjoyed it. So and good. I loved having Arthur draw it. I love. He also drew one backup story for me in in Orion, which is one of my favorite backup stories that I did. It was just he did just a, a such a beautiful job with it, man. Well, that was that was my era of picking stuff up at uh, not knowing about comic shops and going to spinner racks and things like this, man. And when when your time travel story, when the trilogy with Art Adams comes out, that is the same time frame the exact same months as uh the x like the extinction agenda where louise is is uh involved in new mutants and things like that she's a lady we would love to have uh on the channel interview her with her amazing long career we could probably spend an hour talking about warren publishing specifically but i feel like we just scratched the surface with you and and it's been two hours Can, can we do it again sometime oh sure Sure, we can, do, we can do it with me, or if you want, we can get me and Wheezy if you wanted to, or you can just do Wheezy, whatever you'd like to do. Well, all of oh, the well, above. I say it will, be, it will be up to Wheezy about whether she does it or not. Yeah. The thing about Wheezy is she hates interviews, in a sense, but she's really good at them. Yeah, she is. Just, she just thinks she's she can't find the words. I can't find the words. She's just, she's, and she's she's really, she comes across really beautifully on camera and on the just on, on talking about the work that she's done. She does. So if you can get her to do it, you can send me a note and I'll forward it to her. Cool. I don't know if she will do it or not, but uh, I'll tell you guys are nice. So maybe that'll help. <laughs> but, uh, and you do your research. One thing about podcasts, this isn't a podcast I real, but podcasts, I'll, I don't listen to many of them. I, I really almost never, but I, it'd be something with my name. I'll show up on a Twitter feed and I'll say, okay, I'll go look at it or listen to it. And I, I'm usually not more than three minutes in before I hit my first factual error right. where they say, yeah, Walt did Thor for like five years or he did, uh, you know, it began somewhere around three forty, or, and I just, uh, somewhere in there, I just think, so you've done no research. <laughs> this is all sort of like memory, memory foam just for the hell of it. Yeah, I don't think so. So I, I usually bail out of those pretty rapidly, but, but you gentlemen have been a pleasure to talk to him. It's been. It's I hope been, I haven't bored you to death with all these abs- stories. Absolutely not. <laughs> Got to thank Uncle Jeff Darrow for making the initial connection. Hey, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite guys. One of my favorite artists. So awesome. So awesome. But but truthfully, we didn't scratch the surface on That's so true. much stuff, man. Uh, but like, let's please do it again before we get out of here. Do you have any uh, social media or any uh, books forthcoming? We're going to put this video out on Sunday. So if you have any comics like in oh, okay. the near future. Uh, social media wise, um, I have a, there's a Facebook page called the official Walter Simonson page. It's as much of a website as I've got. I have one just Walter Simonson, but that one I have to say, that's a personal page where I friend people I actually know. Um, if you guys are on Facebook, you want to friend me. If you're not already from my friends, I don't know if you are or not. Uh, you had, send me a friend request and we have to lock in. But the the official page is essentially a mirror site of the of my personal page. There's a little more family stuff in the personal page. I don't put out there so much on on Facebook in general. But there's also, if you're interested, just in different a different approach. There's a page called 
the Walt Simonson Appreciation page on Facebook, which an English fan of mine, Oliver Selby, started before I was on Facebook. And so you get other people posting drawings of mine that I haven't seen like in a million years or commenting about stuff I, I hadn't thought about putting up. I participate. If you got ask me a question there, I will try to answer it. But uh, those two are the Facebook pages. I have a Twitter feed, which I think is Walter.Simonson5 or Walter Simonson five or dot five. I don't know how they're I, Twitter. I just, I, I, what I do on Twitter is I put a bunch of pictures up on my Facebook. I mean, face, I'm an old guy. Facebook works best for me because I can give long answers or short answers, whatever I want to do. Twitter's such so abbreviated. I don't find it as interesting, but any pictures I post, I have hundreds of pictures up on Facebook, hundreds and hundreds of pictures going back a lot. I said to fourth grade or thereabouts. And if I post a picture on Facebook, I usually repost it over on Twitter. So most of my Twitter feed is pictures as well. And then I am on Instagram, haven't been on Instagram for maybe for a year. Um, I largely don't understand it. So I do post my pictures. If I put a new picture up on Facebook, I've learned how to grab it, put it over there and, and print all the stuff. I don't like typing my phone much. It's tiny. So I don't type a lot of stuff on my phone, but I can grab the captions and put them over there on Instagram. So I am on Instagram. Uh, I have I just Walter Simonson five there. Maybe that's what's there. I don't even remember. That's how much attention I pay to it. But I do I do look at it from time to time. And I have to say, I've never gotten as many intimate messages from great looking babes as I get on, <laughs> on Instagram. <laughs> babes who read my 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 profile, which I think it just says. I'm still doing comics or something like that. <laughs> say anything, read my profile and they just want to meet me. So. <laughs> so Instagram amuses me a great deal, but I don't really understand it. So I do post there. I don't answer a lot of stuff. I don't, I, again, I don't understand that end of it. I do answer stuff on Facebook. I try to, if I get a question. So, uh, but those are the three places you can find me on the web. And, and you work and as far on as books, yes. as far as books go, there's a four, 750 is that the number some round numbers coming up and i'm doing a beta ray bill story for it so that'll be in a couple of months i guess i just had x-men legends 11 come out which was a new mutant story that wheezy wrote and that was a lot of fun i i don't i've never done the new mutants before um we did two x factors about a year ago and the new mutant story is kind of a third chapter of this trilogy of stories about apocalypse and caliban yeah, but I hadn't drawn the New Mutants. Before. I, I looked at an awful lot of Bilson Kevich's stuff when I was drawing that. I did not make the grade on the Bilson Kevich scale, but at least I had a lot of fun drawing it. It was it was it was neat to draw characters from Marvel that I really hadn't done before much. The the biggest problem was trying to find the goddamn costumes that were correct because those little those little guys change costumes every five <laughs> minutes. So, so Weezy went through the web and found all the costumes. I actually made an accordion file of all the printed uh, print offs from the computer, from the web of all these costumes. So I can keep straight who was wearing what, because it was like drawing the X-Men Teen Titans again in 20 pages. We must've had 17 or 18 characters in that book in these 20 pages. So it was really, it was, it was fun. It was a lot of work, but I enjoyed doing Speaking it. Speaking of- And I like, just working with Wheezy is fun to do. I had a great time working with Wheezy on it. Speaking of costumes, uh, have you ever had an X-Factor artist come up to you crying uh, about Archangel's costume and how many lines oh. there are and the crazy designs and things like that. One of the cool things about it is that to me, it's 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 uniquely Walter Simonson 
artwork, like no matter who draws it, it evoke <laughs> it evokes your sensibility, the sort of geometry of of your your artwork and stuff. Uh, nobody nobody ever has. I've had a lot of people who like the character a great deal, and I have seen variations of the costume where it's still going to be the lines, but they aren't the same lines I drew. They'll be kind of redrawn around the body, and but they still have the right feel. So I'm perfectly happy with that. So, I, but, but I, I, yeah, I liked uh, Archangel was fun. I, I liked doing him, and I mean that was part of the Weezy could tell you the story on it. But when she was doing it, basically, there's an inflation of characters. When characters are around for a while, they become more powerful without actually being juiced up. Um, Thor fights Mr. Hyde, and then a year later, Mr. Hyde comes back, having taken Potion X to juice up his own powers. And again, Thor beats him again. <clears throat> but Thor has to be, by Im implication, more powerful than he was last time in order to beat him now. So as time goes by, characters become more and more powerful. And when X-Factor and Weezy was doing it, the original X-Men were not a lot more powerful than he'd been to begin with. But by the, what was that, at the end of the 80s, all the villains were way more powerful. Now, some of them, like Cyclops and Jean, you just write them more powerfully. Now, instead of blowing away a car, I can blow away a mountain with my my visor, my beams. Or instead of, you know, <clears throat> doing whatever I do this way, Gene, I can lift a mountain. <clears throat> Whereas some of them, like Iceman, the Beast, and Angel, you know, Angel can fly for 60 minutes at about 10,000 feet. Yay. <laughs> so I know he's people's favorite characters. Don't write me letters. But you, know, you couldn't do a lot. So, uh, or you'd have to write lesser villains to fight them. Beast the same way. Um, and Iceman, he had, he had potential. So we did a deliberate inflation of their powers over several stories. And we did it in, so that's why Angel got his wings taken off. Not because we were awful and cruel, although we are awful and cruel, but because we were going to redo him as something way more powerful than he had been before, which we did. Beast was the same way. I guess we turned the, Hank back into the Beast. Could you, then you can make him stronger, you know, in a kind of a sliding scale. And Iceman, we nailed, I think with Loki, and he had to have a belt to kind of tamp down his powers for a while. That's probably all gone by the boards at this point. But it made him more powerful. And it, it, what we were trying to do was bring all that team up to what we regarded as late 80s power levels on a on commensurate with what was going on in the Marvel Universe at the time. And that's why that was being done. This, see, this is why we have to have another conversation at a, at a later date. <laughs> Uncle Walt, thank you so much for coming by. Gentlemen, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.